Welcome back, everyone. To This Is Not. A history. Lecture. I'm going to do a cool sound effect. Hopefully. That took way too much was effort. Was that a, uh... This tr- is... The truly? Oh, I hate that sound so much. <laughs> this is a Topo Chico. It's oh. actually... They have, um, margarita flavors now. Oh, nice. This one is... Hold on. Strawberry hibiscus. Oh, that actually sounds good. It is. Oh. Do you want to try it? Do I? Is it, like, strong? It's... No. So you know it's me, like a like white zero. It's like five percent. Oh, yeah. Oh, dang. No, yeah, they're good. Oh, they got recommended to me. So okay, I might actually have a. That's good, right? Drink. Oh, that's good. Okay. Mm-hmm. The other flavors are good too. That's actually that one's a really good one, but they have like a pineapple something flavor, and I think that one's my favorite out of the okay. the margarita. That might selections. be endorsed as our official drink on this. Podcast. <laughs> It's, it's rare to find something that Cal and I both like drinking. That's not true. Rum and Coke. We both drink a rum and Coke. Listen, I'll drink anything. That's fair. <laughs> That's fair. I'm the picky one. Yeah. Um, well, you have other problems going on. So. <laughs> fair. <laughs> yeah. So, well, welcome back. Um, things have... Uh, I mean, <laughs> I can't say things have gotten better or worse. It's just kind of like mildly screwed up everywhere. Well... Boris Johnson has... <laughs> There's been a lot of, like, unexpected... Like, world stuff World events happening with America various crumbled. leaders. And then, heaven forbid, <laughs> we had... Okay. Boris Johnson resigns. Shinzo Johnson. Abe got assassinated. And then America's just, like, holding on for dear life to its rights. But it, Biden did sign the executive order, I believe, yesterday, protecting... Um, yeah. Uh, Roe v. Wade and abortion access and stuff like that. So. Um It'll be still, interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, still I'm a bit sure nervous exactly, about like, upcoming stuff. Yeah, um, I think I think last time when we were on here, I might have said that more v. Harper already got yeah. overturned. I think it's on the docket. It's on the docket. Yeah, so yeah. it hasn't been overturned yet. Do I think They'll it will it. get overturned? Well, yes. The, the thing is, is everyone's like, no one thought because if you don't know how it works, the Supreme Court selects the cases they want to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone was like, oh, this case is so ridiculous. Like, there's no way they're going to hear it. Right. And then they, they selected the it to put it on the docket. Um, and if you aren't familiar, this case would basically allow gerrymandering mm-hmm. um, without any federal respect. Just basically let um, it congressmen. federal powers from monitoring what's going on in yes. a state election. Yeah. Um, are we talking about the same case? I'm talking about the one that would like just let gerrymandering. Do oh, oh, that's part. I think it's part of Morphe Harper. Yeah. Like part of, it's a um, b- byproduct of that decision. Yeah. Yeah. So that means that um, the what's what's it called the redlining electoral college. Oh yeah. Well, just um, <laughs> vote in Republicans from here on out. So yeah. well, mm-hmm. and when you live in a state like Texas, <laughs> where every major city is blue, except for I think Fort Worth. Yeah, Fort Worth is kind of like purple. But yeah, it's not. If we're being honest, it's, it's purple. But yeah, um, but it's the it, only one that's not. Yeah, so it would make it even harder for people's Basically, voices individually letting, to actually be heard. It would just allow Congress or county lines to be drawn in whatever way would secure um, the Republicans' votes in the Republican states. Because the last thing in the world we want is, God forbid, Texas goes blue. Which it is by popular vote. Oh, Texas is a blue state. Which is so funny because people assume, and I'm like, no, you, you, if you come down here thinking you're gonna get people riding on their horses to school and you know, like, yeah, you know what's so like funny? hardcore, like southern, you're you, 
you'd be half correct, half wrong. It depends on where you are in Texas. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we are in not a small town, Texas, but definitely not a city. Mm-hmm. And you still don't see people <laughs> oh, yeah. riding, to, riding oh, yeah. to school on horses. But it's so funny because I used to be like, oh, Southerners aren't that bad. Like, Texas is all the stereotypes and blah, blah, blah. Wherein my family, like, actually owned a horse <laughs> for most of my life. <laughs> I rode horses growing up. Like, yeah. I, I mean, it's pretty normal. Yeah. like Which I guess is, like... It's an exaggerated form of that of people being like, "Oh, everyone has a horse." Well, it's just funny because a lot of us like, do interact with horses. The more stereotypes than the average they exist for a reason, but then the people that like enforce those stereotypes usually give it a bad name, and it sucks because like there's a lot of cultural things in the South. Horses are cool. Yeah, that are like that's awesome, and you don't have to be like a certain type of Texan to appreciate those things. You know what's cool? But you have to be aware of where those cultures and traditions come from, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. But so, Texas uh, barbecue? like Texas barbecue. I will oh, fight anyone. No, no. Texas barbecue uh-huh. is hands down the best barbecue. Mm-hmm. I will. It's beef-based, and the sauce is vinegar-based. I will fight anyone. None of that pork yeah. shit. None of that sweet barbecue <laughs> Callie, sauce. You feel very strongly I am about this. I actively hate sweet barbecue sauce. Like sweet baby rays, <laughs> I know it has. Like people love it. I, can't, I do not like sweet baby rays. I don't. That's, that's fine. I'll that's, eat it. Yeah. I will not be happy about it. <laughs> that's okay. I am also. And I don't on, like pork either. But I love some good Texan fixins. Oh yeah. Like fried okra. Is that is that a Texas thing? Or is it a I don't know if it's thing? Texas or Southern, but I just know that we have it a lot with Texas styled barbecue. Um, I feel like it's kind of like a also, German immigrant thing. That could be would also explain that. why my family always my had family it. also has fried okra. Yeah, yeah. Well, anything. I mean, you got there's a certain kind of potato salad you gotta have, oh, a certain kind of cream corn salad. you gotta have. Like, mm. anyway, I'm gonna make myself so hungry if we keep talking about this. So yeah. just know that if you're in Texas, the first thing you do. Get some Texas barbecue. Barbecue. Mm-hmm. And you can go to Rudy's. They're a big chain. They do a pretty good job. But the best place, you just got to find a good you gotta, like, local place. Yeah. If there's a back road with like a the shack. One, the one that I like, my favorite barbecue place, um, beside the one that we went to growing up and has since closed. But um, my favorite current barbecue place is um, near my parents' house on a street called Deadman Street. And it's literally in the middle of a neighborhood. I love it. <laughs> and if you're there... That's how, anywhere like that, that's, that's how you know mm-hmm. you're going to have good barbecue. There's one in Frisco. It's a chain. Um, and we've been a couple times because it opened when I was like going to college and everything. So I wasn't there enough to like religiously go eat at it. But it's like a smoke pit style. So it's like mm-hmm. the full grill. You just walk by the grill and like oh, pick yeah. what you want off. Oh, it's so good. And I am so mm, love that kind of thing. Barbecue. Dang. I'm going to get really hungry now. <laughs> um, and we're not even talking about anything food remotely related today. No, we're not. So it's episode 75, which like props to us. That's a big episode. I I can't believe. That's crazy. That's weird. I feel like we're just kind of doing it. At this we're point, like, we're just hanging we're like, in here oh, for the ride. 75. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, we've literally <laughs> just been chugging along through such like a term- tumultuous time that I haven't been paying yeah. attention to like numbers. I've just been like, no. okay, get through the week, record, go to work, get through everything. Yeah. And I mean, done. ultimately we've mentioned this a lot, but like this started as a way for us to like keep history mm-hmm. in our everyday life. Mm-hmm. And I, I, that's, you know, that's why I enjoy it. Yeah. Like, and I, that's why I, I still love myself, doing it. Yeah. I taught myself to think about today that I have no idea about. Oh, so. same. I had zero clue. I literally went Googling for something interesting because I thought yeah. I knew what I wanted. And then I was like, no, you know what? Yeah. I don't want to, cause ours would have been kind of close in time mm-hmm. to each other. And I didn't want to double up on American topics in the same time period. So, I went looking for something else, and I was like, 
I'm still learning so much just because I, I keep know. rabbit holing every time I research and I'm it's like so... I have like 10 tabs open with different topics and I have to read over all of them before I decide which one I want to do I, I, I just I'm proud of us because I feel like we've both learned so much oh yeah like in our own research and from each other oh yeah like this is so this is a lot of fun this you is. know I have a lot of fun doing this of course viewers and everything we love y'all and you make it so much fun too yes but at, at the end of the day at its core mm-hmm. just us like getting to do history is a lot of fun yeah because so, otherwise yeah. we would be in just the museum aspect of things right now this is yeah, my history which is outlet fun, but like we yeah. both we're historians by yeah. our first degrees yeah you know if i am gonna say what i am i'm gonna say i'm a historian, historian. for anything yeah um so yeah but anyway all of that is to say that it's mm-hmm. 75 and we got our fives so we got theme episode yes bum, bum, bum. and today's theme is labor movement boom um i suggested this theme because if you've been paying attention to, to anything mm-hmm. um in america and largely in america but i know in other places too um we are kind of in the midst of one of the biggest pushes for labor movements that we've seen in a long time. Very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's pretty clear why a lot of the conditions are very similar, if not um, even harder to draw attention to because they're not as apparent what's mm-hmm. happening. Um, I'll talk a little bit about it in mind. But I we just have felt... mass media communications too now. Yeah, exactly. I just felt like, sorry, you know, like we were saying... You know, I don't know a lot about the labor history movement or the mm-hmm. history of the labor movement in the United States mm-hmm. and other places. So I was like, oh, and I just visited Chicago. So that's what mine is coming from. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, but I'm excited to hear yours. Yeah, so. um, I'm excited to give it. Um, I think that we are, like you said, we're in such an interesting place to understand the history of labor movements, because if we can comprehensively understand them and how mm-hmm. we've adapted them over time, we can do better at adapting them now and protecting workers. Yeah. It does help, too, that we're in the midst of a second civil rights movement right now. Yeah. And a and lot of know, time, workers' of... rights are being conflated with, like, well, other rights. There's a lot of similarities, to me at least, as to why we're seeing a second civil rights movement mm-hmm. and a second labor, or not, I don't want to say second, but another big push right. for labor rights. Um, one, and the kind of fight that is happening in both places is there's a lot of like parallels. They're not related. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are, but they aren't. Yeah. But there's a lot of parallels because the civil rights movement we're kind of going through now is one to kind of push past and push through and undo the work that that kind of like unconscious bias and systemic racism and a lot of those unseen things Mm -hmm. are happening. Whereas the first one was like, you can physically see the segregation and we're trying to end things that we can physically see. The same thing is true with the labor movement because Mm -hmm. in the first big push that we had in like the 1890s, 1880s, um, you could physically see the conditions that these people were working in. You could see these people are dying there. You have like Upton Sinclair, you have all those people helping expose this. The conditions are a lot more obvious, whereas we still have the same sort of like stratifications between workers and um, like class, class in yeah. what's the like bosses and stuff. The proletariat, um, the proletariat, the bourgeois. <laughs> the I know. Bourgeois. I was like, how do I say this without saying like the oppressors, <laughs> um, the workers, and like you know the the mm-hmm. top you know one percent. Because a lot of like I'm sure everyone's seen the graphs of like the wealth stratification wealth, right now is wealth so gap bad. is like 
identical to what it was when these first labor movements happened. But, you know, we have all these things in place. Like we have a 40 hour work week. We have a minimum wage. Mm -hmm. So like in theory, we should be better. Just like we don't have segregation anymore. Mm -hmm. But like now we're working (laughs) in theory. Um, Yeah. So now we're the fight is a lot harder because we're trying to push for things. Systemic change. Systemic change that is not as like glaringly obvious Mm -hmm. which is why we also have so many deniers yeah to both of those things and the fight is like a very different one than the one that we've had before i find a lot of those deniers are the same people who don't agree with like crt and stuff like that who don't want to who want to say we have it all fixed now because we did this in the past and it's like no Mm -hmm. we've started fixing it in the past we need to continue fixing it and it's the same kind of thing it's like oh we had racism and that was bad Mm -hmm. and then we had segregation and that was bad but then we had the civil rights movement and everything's better. Mm-hmm. Just like, oh, we had really bad working conditions, but then we had the labor's right movement and everything's better. Mm-hmm. This, it's not. And you should not. never stop working to improve where <laughs> no. you live. Your country, your yeah. county, your state, whatever your situation, that is our responsibility as citizens to constantly be improving, not just for yeah. ourselves, but everyone, whether mm-hmm. they be a lower class than you. And a lot of classism is still rooted in racism. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, absolutely. expectations for workers who tend to be of different demographics and stuff. So I tried to move my mic closer. I, you're, you're, okay, don't move the stand, move I'm the just, arm. Boom. Is that better? That is better. Okay. Thank you for pointing it at your mouth. The easiest thing to do. <laughs> I struggle with this. Anyway, anyway so yeah. without further ado, I said my spiel and I'll be saying more of it when I do my part. But okay. I'm excited to hear yours. Alrighty. Well, like I said, I was debating what to do because I didn't want to put one at the same time period as Cal's. Um, There are a lot of influential strikes that when I was Googling options, Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my gosh, I should do this one and this one and this one. Like the Pullman strike, which gave us Labor Day. It was extremely violent as well. It killed like dozens of people. Yeah. Um, That's funny because the one I gives us, I'll explain it, but the one I did gave us another Labor Day. But oh, then we yeah. settled on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This one? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, there's also, like, the stonemason strike in Australia in the middle of the 1800s that gave us the eight-hour workday, and eventually that kind of got adapted to America. Also, I've realized that the d- changes in our society are not accounted for in the workforce. Like, the eight-hour workday does not make sense no, not for the way our society runs no. and the convenience of tech technology and the change yep. that we've had like yeah people really said oh was, it worked in the 1850s let's keep let's doing do it now <laughs> when we had to wait for the freaking pony express to <laughs> deliver <laughs> our <laughs> mail <laughs> yeah and all you had to do was like write a letter and then wait at your desk for something to come yeah. back <laughs> well and the family structure was different you didn't have two income households you didn't need yep. you didn't need two people working you didn't need yep. child care like all these different things now that change how we function so um Oh, yeah, that one also gave us May Day. I didn't know where that term came from. May Day, yeah. Until... Um, so a lot of, from what I'm hearing, mm-hmm. the eight-hour workday and May Day and a lot of those things were being fought, just from what you're describing, were being fought for at the same time in various parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And so they all kind of, like, are happening at the same moment. Yeah. And then they all kind of Well, the stonemason strike that started the eight-hour workday, that took forever, not forever, but took, like, a so the... quite a few years to reach America. Well... In 1867, I'll talk about it, but there was already legislation, um, like, outlawing a workday longer than eight hours. That's where it comes from, actually. That legislation, I think it comes from the example set by the stonemasons in the 1850s uh, in Australia. Okay, you said 1880s. Oh, sorry. Sorry, yeah. I meant 1850s. I, <laughs> okay, that makes more sense. Yeah. Because I was no, like, um, mm, the timeline's a little weird. Yeah. <laughs> no. Like, um, okay, that makes sense. So yeah. it really does go to show, like, how much these all feed off of each other. 
So I'm going to go back the furthest possible, and oh. I'm going to talk about the very first strike we know of. Is it ancient? It is ancient. Uh, okay, cool. <laughs> I know. I was like, oh, okay. I'm so glad. We're not just going to go back like 100 years. We're going to go back like <clears throat> far. Is it? Ancient Egypt. 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 Okay. I yes. was like can't decide if it would be more Roman or Greek. To right. It would definitely be more Greek to strike. Right. <laughs> but yeah. Egypt. Okay. I'm excited. Yeah. So I was like, I can either go really recent or really far back. And a lot of the recent ones, like the ones in India with millions of strikers are so important, but they're not quite in the history context that we normally talk about. Right. So I'm taking it all the way back. So my summary, if you would like to keep listening to mine or skip ahead to Cal's, is that Today, I will be talking about the earliest recorded organized strike that we know of. It was caused by unrest, conflict, and resource drainage in Egypt during the reign of Ramses III. <gasps> Ramses. Ramses. So, um, I would also like to note that the most complete and extensive article that I found on this was from worldhistory.org. And I got a good chunk of my information for it. It was like one of those articles. Well, that history.org. Had... That's the one that I was using for the assassins art, or the episode. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. They have they, the the they articles have they do really have niche, are really are really detailed. fleshed out. Yeah. yeah. And, and I they was have like a lot of really great primary source quotes on there. Exactly. That's yeah. why I was so I was like, okay, I'm gonna get information from other sites too. Honestly, but that one, I was like, I trust the way this no. is written out so and well. It's worldhistory.org, which usually and usually a dot org dot edu is a more reliable yeah. source. Um, and honestly, if you're interested in like anything history, I would suggest that you go read their stuff over like Wikipedia. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. Because they have a lot of really, I like, I enjoy worldhistory.org. Yeah. Yeah. Because they don't just drop an event on you either. They give yeah. you the background, the mm -hmm. context and everything. So I want to throw it out there that this is, this art, my talk today, it will be largely based around information I got from them. Mm -hmm. Definitely go read the article. They have yeah, some cool Yeah, they're pictures. like one of the only sources on the assassins, other than like That's a couple so cool. YouTube videos I found. That's so cool. So, yeah. Yeah. Highly recommend. We stand. Yes. We sponsor you by our words. Um, <laughs> we would not be here without you. Thank no you, history.org. <laughs> yeah. So, let's get into the background and the setting a little bit. We're going to jump um, into not just ancient Egypt, but specifically the era known as the New Kingdom, which is marked between 1570 to 1069 BCE. Now, when this strike occurred, we weren't quite at the end of the New Kingdom's reign of strength yet, but a lot of historians agree that this strike kind of marks the beginning of that decline, that it was both a harbinger of the struggles that they were going to face soon, but also a contribution to those issues. It's kind of like the whole discussion about causation and correlation. Mm. You see both of that in the surrounding issues that lead to this. Mm -hmm. um, there are other historians that argue that the downfall of the new kingdom was more due to military conflict than workers and lack of resources and stuff. But either way you slice it, this is all going on around the same time. So there's definitely something to be said for the collapse of a functioning society. Okay, so Ramses III, we're going to zero in even tighter. Within ancient Egypt, we're now in the New Kingdom. And within the New Kingdom, we are now talking about Ramses III specifically. Right. So we are tied in between the years 1186 until 1155 BCE. Ramses III was arguably a pretty good leader. Um, he had a pretty rounded concern for his citizens and Egypt itself. He was not particularly you know, self-involved or power hungry or money hungry that I saw talked about a whole lot he 
cared about the infrastructure specifically and the general welfare. He did a lot of restoration work on uh, national symbols that they held with great pride, um, worked on contributing money to the upkeep of already built monuments and structures as well as building new ones himself. He focused on keeping peace with the other civilizations, which is no small feat right now because towards the end of the New Kingdom, we're also looking at the end of the late bronze age Hmm. and that as we know is a lot of time with conflict and war and eventually just kind of like all kind of falls apart yeah that was my um attempt at onomatopoeia sound effects for today how would you spell that um p-t-q-x-r-y-z you know i see the letters but i'm not sure (laughs) if they're in the right order that's fair um So Ramses was doing a pretty good job. He started off pretty strong. Um, The country itself is struggling with trade and resources and supplies. So as we get into the strike, we're looking at three major reasons for the upheaval. I'll get into each of them in a little more detail, but we're mainly looking at a loss of resources, corrupt officials, not Ramses himself, but within that kind of set up system yeah Yeah. and casualties of war that led to a loss of labor Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. interesting yes 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 so um i know i mentioned that he was a pretty good leader in specifics he um had built and restored his his monuments but he had also instilled a new sense of law and order but this is in a time when it takes information arguably longer than it does now with our texting to cross areas. So it's very likely that Ramses actually didn't know about this strike at all so while you're it was happening. That ancient Egypt did not information transferring took longer than texting. Unfortunately, yes. It's kind really? of like MySpace, you know, rather That's than That's crazy. I would, I would have never, never guessed, guessed. that. <laughs> never guessed. Wow, you're blowing my mind here. I know. I love history. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. So he was, um, noticed, he knew about the lack of resources, but, and he was obviously paying attention to the overall issue because he did plant trees and vegetation as public services. He documented the aspects of his reign rather well, so historians have some stuff to go off of. There's certain things though that he omitted from his official records. And we see a lot of leaders do this who don't mm. want to own up to their mistakes. But to be fair, it is also hard for Ramses to take complete credit for anything because a lot of it was not being decided by one dude on like in power. You have to delegate really right. heavily to the people because yeah. it's going to take a year for you to let the pharaoh know that this is happening. In the meantime, your entire, entire city could burn. Yeah. So... Yeah, the chain of command is a bit different than we know it. So if we look at those resources that they're struggling with, we see a lot of harvests at this time with a really low yield. There is geological evidence from the 12th century BCE that suggests the Near East had some really bad famine and drought around this time. Um, We'll get into the labor shortage aspects in a minute, but it's important to acknowledge that the season and weather put a serious strain on the natural ability for their crops to yield for a long period of time. So their reserves were getting used up because they, I mean, they were smart. They knew like, you're going to have good years. You're going to have bad mm-hmm. years. Let's stock it up in the granary. Let's, you know, keep it all. No, okay. we're talking yeah. about a bad enough famine and that we are emptying our backup resources too. Mm. Um, grain of course was the main staple. They needed it for not just food, but beer um, and, and other 
things that we don't necessarily think of as like they used it in everything because it's their main well yeah export so yeah. it's very necessary and if you're not selling a lot of goods you're not selling a lot of food what else are you missing out on you're missing out on taxes <laughs> And that's not Money. great for a society that's infrastructure relies a lot on those taxes. Um, so without those public funds, we're going to start losing other parts of infrastructure that have nothing to do with, um, oh my God, what's the word? Um, not organic, but like food, you know, specifically food, that lack of taxes uh, agriculture. on agriculture. Thank you. I was like <laughs> the thingy where you grow the thingies and we all survive off of those thingies. You know, um, farms. Those, You've heard of yeah. those, right? Yeah. Um, so soon that agricultural shortage is going to start affecting every part of the infrastructure. And there's definitely a mismanagement of funds um, hanging around at this time. We see the, the social structure is not crumbling by any means, but a lot of power is given to individuals monitoring certain areas. Because again, there's no way Ramses can know about everything going on all the time, every place in the kingdom. Fair enough. Sounds like an excuse to me, but fair enough. Yes. Yeah, you know, I would agree. Um, in the balance of religion, we've talked about it before in ancient Egypt. It's super important. Religion has like, so much control over the everyday life, over the everyday function. But the main thing you need to know about these leaders is that their one job is to really keep a balance. There's a special word for it um, that they used that's, it literally just means the balance of society, like the good, the equal balance of good and evil between everything. And at the end of the day, I don't think these, um, these, community leaders necessarily were given a group of you know you do this this and this and here's your procedure and policy if this goes down or this they were just told like do your best to keep that balance so some of them took advantage of that more than others and took advantage of their power more than others and unfortunately we're going to start seeing that um abuse of power more in this time period Um, especially as military operations start to hike up from the battle with the sea people, literally S E A, like just sea people. Um, oh. yeah. Mermaids. <laughs> Pirates. <God>. Pirates. <laughs> um, do tell. <laughs> yeah. Well, military operations always warp funding and control and the yield of power and who has power so much that it becomes mm-hmm. very easy to take advantage of your citizens. Yeah. Also, I did, it's a little off topic, but I saw someone else making fun of the thing today where Columbus was like, oh, yes, the mermaids. And they're like, you mean, <laughs> you mean the walrus? I think I, I think I saw the TikTok you're talking yeah. about. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. What, what, a, what a guy. If you are curious, look up uh, Columbus, Columbus and, and mermaids. Um, mermaids. It's very interesting. It's very, um, it's very um, interesting is the word for it, isn't it? That's like the whole discussion about um, how, I think it's syphilis wasn't present mm-hmm. in certain parts of the world until yep. Columbus went went a um, an adventure in. And if you don't know, a lot of our um, STDs we're dealing with are from animals. You <laughs> anyway. There's so much about that that's just so chaotic. <laughs> um, again, if you're curious. Just, they should, I'm just, sure uh, someone just somewhere some... has a complete compilation of the, oh, I'm venereal diseases I'm <laughs> that Columbus I'm positive had. that exists. Uh, oh my God. Anyway. Um, yeah, so these sea people are not mermaids, but there's an invasion into Egypt by this group. 
It was like the third attempt the sea people made to make it into Egypt, though. Do we know who the sea people are? Actually, no. It's Atlantis. <laughs> oh. Oh, that would be interesting. New head canon just new, for new the conspiracy of theory. The world. The sea people why, have that's always what been here. Theories are it's just head canon, <laughs> but in real life, that's true. Um, yeah, no, we actually don't know who the sea people are. Interesting, because it's a very loosely organized. It's group made up of like raiders and mercenary types that have been attacking all over the place. For a while. And because of the Sea People's defeat in other areas, they literally tore down other civilizations. It's hard to know exactly what they were comprised of because you could like have an origin, but by then you've accumulated soldiers from all of the civilizations that you've managed to collapse. You've pressed ganged them and joining you. You've, I mean, slavery is a thing in this time, so it's possible that you've enslaved people and made them fight in your army. And if that's the case, they've been picking up people from all over the world by now. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say all over the world, but all over the area by now. Um, Historians have suggested that they're made up of everything from Mycenaeans to Trojans to Philistines, etc. The sea people had tried and were defeated twice before in their invasions of Egypt. The first was during the reign of Ramses II, um, who was reigning between 1279 BCE to 1213 BCE. Thank you. Yeah. You saw my look. I did. Just point it more towards you. You and that mic. I move when I talk. Um, (laughs) And this is why our audio quality is bad. I'm sorry. I'm working on it. headset. I know. Oh, I can look like um, Kim Possible with her little Bluetooth thing. For like any gamer ever. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that might be something I need to invest in. But yeah. mm. um, The second time in that they attacked and were defeated came from Menepta, um, who was ruling between 1213 to 1203 BCE, which was like a 10-year reign. So I was like, who would this be? I ended up going on a rabbit hole of who had a 10-year reign, and that would be a cool topic for another day. Mm-hmm. But... Um, they managed both of those previous times to beat the sea people away. But either they have a um, need, a sadistic need to just keep getting beaten back by the Egyptians, or they really thought they could win this last time. To be fair, they had definitely grown in size since their two previous attacks, but still not enough that Ramses III didn't feel like he could gain a large enough or build a large enough army to attack back mm-hmm. um unfortunately though unless you're america in the world wars supplying weapons war is actually not great for your economy <laughs> it's not um no because you have to buy all the weapons yeah so this time ramses is like okay what are we gonna do we're gonna have we're gonna have to fight and we have he acknowledged that it's like now or never situations it's not like oh we're gonna threaten them back and see if they'll back off he was like no we have to have a huge display of power up front to prevent them from gaining any ground and any possibility of overtaking us Mm -hmm. so they're already worried about resources and this is going to put a major strain um and this eggs all in one basket mad all-out defense requires them to be both on land and in water he lures the sea people closer than they probably would have come otherwise to the Nile by putting um, all of his people it's not a delta, what is it? Uh, the peninsula. Is that the word I'm looking yes. for? Yes. Um, 
he draws them in so that they'll be kind of be surrounded more on the sides. And he has long range weapons at the go ready to attack like archers so that they could beat as many of them back as possible without having to let the sea people get a foothold of the land. While the plan worked overall, the Egyptians didn't meet, manage to beat them back completely while they were still in the water. So there were some major losses on land. Um, this is occurring in the year 1178 BCE. It's the attack and the loss of people that the Egyptians had was enough to make a sizable impact on the resources. It's difficult to know exactly how much they lost because there's a serious lack of record keeping, which could be coincidental or it just happened that those documents were destroyed. But it's most likely that Ramses didn't want to document it because mm -hmm. they didn't want to admit what the real death toll was yeah. and the um, loss of resources they took because, I mean, if both of your successors or predecessors managed to beat them back, you kind of don't want to look like the dude that lost a huge army in the process of doing that's, the same thing. That's fair, yeah. Well, I mean, it's not fair. But uh, yeah. I, I understand the king logic in that. Yeah. Problem is, enough people did die that we have a major strain on labor shortage now because this mm -hmm. was a conscription. Like, this was drafted. Mm. Um, so the king, when he was building up his army, knew he wasn't going to have enough people and forced people to join the army. And now a bunch of those people are dead. And those had been merchants and traders and farmers and artisans. Mm -hmm. So he's facing a whole new problem. And when they defeated the sea people, the Egyptians did enslave a lot of them. Um, because slavery was always a thing, yep. unfortunately. Um, yep. And some who were defeated were forced into the Egyptian army. But a lot of those slaves went back to work in the fields, in the artisan. You know, you kind of need special skills to be an artisan. But it wasn't enough to fix the huge gap that they now face in the labor shortage. So, however bad those losses were, Ramses is not... I, this is where it gets hard to say whether or not he was a good leader or if he was a little power hungry because he was not deterred enough that he didn't make a victory tour afterwards. Yeah. And it's hard to know like what, how much of that is ceremony? Like you're expected to make a victory right. tour no matter what versus your ego versus like, well, he, I mean, I don't think we have to put him in a, any sort of, that's true. I feel like he's the whole the ancient culture thing is such a different culture that I really can't speak to it at all. Right. Cause it's like the professors used to say at our school, mm -hmm. you have to view it as like an alien world, like a different time completely. So yep. I can't say what his motivation was, but he did not think that the drain on the resources was going to be so bad that he didn't overlook his little victory round. Gotcha. Okay. He, on this tour, it did allow him to see a bunch of areas and travel to a bunch of areas that he wouldn't have normally otherwise seen. So he's putting money towards temples and monuments in those places He's making sure that people are performing their jobs and keeping the balance. He's also using this time to check in on other political powers. Um, there were some corrupt officials that were taking advantage that he kind of called out and removed. But this is also a chance for him to sort of like remedy revolution, sorry, remedy relationships with entire other civilizations. That mm. was a mouthful. Sorry, that one took me a second. <laughs> um, so. The problem is, I I think he was thinking like, oh, if I get rid of this like corrupt official, it'll all be fixed. And as we know, and we discussed at the beginning of this podcast, 
this is not a one and done. We're going to fix the problems and everything goes away. These are systemic yeah. issues that take years to fix. It cannot be done in one fell swoop. So even though he removed some of these kind of corrupt leaders, it doesn't mean that another one won't take their place. Right. He genuinely did want the best for Egypt, though, and was trying to fix infrastructure issues. And to be fair, when you say, oh, go fix up that monument, you are stimulating the economy by putting, mm-hmm. you know, your tax dollars to work and paying people to do it. It's massive drain on resources, though. And he sent a whole, not an envoy, but like he set up kind of a new push to trade with other civilizations, which had worked with, oh my God, I don't have it written in my notes, but I know this one. Um, I, we talked about her. Um, Hep, Hepthys, I can never say her name. I feel so bad. Hepthys, the, I know who you're the, talking about. Yeah. The queen. Um, yes. Hep- Hep- Hepthys. It's like hepthesit. I cannot yeah, say it. I, I can um, see the word, but I couldn't tell yeah. you how to pronounce it. Because when she had this issue, she ended up trading with other um, civilizations nearby mm-hmm. that provided with so much, so many resources that it actually like bounced the entire Egyptian economy mm-hmm. further. And I think that's part of what he was doing. He was like, hey, we'll start trading with these other people. We'll have what we need. It'll all be great. Problem is... When you near the end of the Bronze Age, you're also looking at the collapse of, like, the Mycenaeans and mm-hmm. a bunch of other people. So Different landscape. Yeah. No one is sending tons of resources that he can just be like, oh, yes, we are bouncing back with trade. Yeah. Um, but they did manage enough trade that it should have helped fix some of the issues in the treasury. And a lot of historians are confused on why it didn't. If it was mismanaged after it was accumulated or what. But... No matter how much money you have, you still can't fix famine. Mm-hmm. You can't, you know, pay the weather to start raining. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of historians think that no matter how much he would have been able to fix with trade, they couldn't fix the agricultural issues they were facing. And here we come to the breaking point that really starts the first strike. As we work our way up to Ramsey's big 30-year anniversary of being in power, his big um, jubilee. His 3 Mm-hmm. His big birthday party. Um, they're going to go all out. Mm. Again, a mismanagement of resources, yeah, especially when you're not a super yeah. great thing to do in this time of, you know. Yeah. And this is not like, oh, the crown's money is doing this. Like, no, this is the people's money. Oh, it, it absolutely And the is. people are watching and the people mm-hmm. are like, this is our money. This is not how you should be spending this hey, lavish buddy. celebration. Not a great move. Not, yeah. Not a great move. Mm-hmm. So in 1128, they're getting they're getting this huge party ready, and the funding's starting to struggle for some of the tradesmen, namely the people who are working on the tombs and the great monuments, which, if you know much about Egyptian culture, those are huge sources of pride, not just on the nationalistic front, but like the religious aspect too, because a lot of those are monuments to important people and made for the gods, and it's a sign of respect, and it's a pillar of their lives and culture. And there were a lot of pillars in the in the carvings. <laughs> I hate you so much right now. I hate that that made me laugh. Carry on. Okay. Well, these um, artisans and these tradesmen who were working specifically on the monuments, um, their paychecks are late by like a full month. And if you've ever been working paycheck to paycheck... Yeah, you can't afford to not get paid yeah, for a full month. That's it, so that long. It doesn't work. I get stressed out, like, 
Okay. If it doesn't like drop at the same time, if my paycheck doesn't end up in my account, like at the same time know, on I'm the like, Friday, I can't I'm like, make it two weeks. I'm, like, oh my, I'm immediately like, do I need to call like and make sure that like it got deposited or something? It's scary. It um, is. It can be really scary. So these people were, I mean, asking them to wait a month at all was a pretty big ask for a lot of these people. Um, and there were people who could kind of negotiate and be the intermediary between the workers and the officials. So in the meantime, the compromise was like, okay, we'll take some food. Not money, but we'll give you some food. Which, not everyone needs food. Not everyone uses all their money on food. Sometimes you need medicine. Sometimes Mm -hmm. you need um, housing. Like, it's kind of like the whole theory of food stamps. Like, sometimes... You can't just hand people food because that's not what they need. Sometimes they need hygiene items, all that jazz. And you can't really, like, brush your teeth with wheat. Uh I mean, you actually probably could. I don't... Well, I think teeth hygiene was probably low on the priority list there. It was a bad example. Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, One of these intermediaries and people watching this go down was a scribe named Amenacht. And his writings are one of the only reasons we actually know about this because, again, Ramses was not big on documenting things that didn't make him look super good. And we have some of the original um, writings about this strike. I believe that they're on exhibit in a museum in Egypt still. Hmm. Or maybe it was the British. No, it's not the British Museum. They're back in Egypt, I think. It's probably the Egyptian Museum. Probably. Is that what it's called? Their big one? I think it is. I didn't... I just know it's on exhibit. I didn't... Yeah. I think... I saw that it was on exhibit in Egypt. I know a lot of the artifacts that have been returned Repa- are, yeah, are from the Egyptian oh, Museum. Yeah. Because they had that huge ceremony, too, where they yeah. had all the um, mummies I think I want to say it's the Egyptian Museum. Okay. Um, if I could spell Egypt, it definitely doesn't have an R in it. <laughs> Mood. I couldn't spell actual this morning. I typed it four times before I got it right. So... But everyone who could have done something has done something at this point. You've got all these intermediaries who are, like, telling the officials, hey, it's been a full month. Food is not going to cut it soon. You need to actually pay these people. And all those officials are finally, like, okay. Yes, it is called the Egyptian Museum. Okay. It's probably there then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But all these officials are kind of like, well, yeah, we'll pay you, but we're kind of focused on the big jubilee right now and, like, making sure that everything's great and this party's going to be lit. And everyone else is kind of like, yeah, we would love a lit party, but you know what would be, like, more? To get paid. To, like, to, like, survive. To, you know, make money. And it happens... We're so happy that, like, y'all are happy, but... (laughs) Yeah. Well, it happens time and time again. Like, they'll they'll pay Mm. them for the month and they'll be like, oh, sorry about last month. Our bad here's some money, go away. And then they'll go another month, paycheck doesn't come. And so this cycle keeps repeating itself over and over until eventually the tradesmen and their payment system just kind of collapses. And about 18 days after their last missed payday, they put down their tools and they head towards the cities, declaring that they are hungry and saying, we are hungry and basically proving like we're not going to work this time until you give us a solution we are tired of this go around Mm. of you putting our payments off a full month then paying us and then having to wait again so it's very clear who this message message is aimed at because they gather first at ramses iii's mortuary temple and that's a pretty pointed tactic to sit at Mm. the mortuary temple for 
that you've been like working on and you know yeah. building for a dude who's it's his celebration everyone's getting big ready for his big 3-0 like yeah it, yeah it's hard to ignore that at that That's point fair. yeah um later they did end up at like other temples for other pharaohs and stuff but they're just kind of like camping out here like no we're hungry we're not going to keep working until you pay us and obviously they don't contextually know what a strike is at this point yeah it's kind of revolutionary but like they got it they got the message if you put down your stuff and refuse to work yeah someone's gonna have to do something otherwise their buildings aren't gonna be built and they need Mm -hmm. those buildings built because the jubilee is coming up (sighs) so this does challenge the class system system a bit too um because before those officials whose whole job it was was to balance the good in society and find that equality they had been focused on it especially for the tradesmen because the tradesmen themselves are like the higher of the working class like skilled labor is more held in some more esteem than like a farmer might Mm -hmm. or something like that so all these farmers and lower class merchants are like "Uh uh-oh if they're not going to pay the tradesmen what is this going to do for us? So it's not just upending the that important balance in the tradesman circles. It's going to upend everything. People are going to start panicking in general that no laborers are going to be treated fairly and no laborers are going to get paid. So, and without the genuine concept of a union, like they don't quite understand that they can all band together and demand this, you know, say like none of us are going to go back to work. We're going to take care of each other if you don't, pay out like that kind of union concept doesn't exist yet right but this is enough that the officials are noticing if they kind of band together not unionize but band together Mm -hmm. what if the other classes do and they realize the longer that they let this go on the more likely they are to lose work on all fronts from artisans and farmers and merchants and Mm -hmm. it's going to create a huge problem and it we see that nowadays that workers rely or big corporations rely on their employees not understanding the power of unions Mm -hmm. because if you don't talk amongst yourself that's also why a lot of people say you should talk about your salary like anyone who tells you that you aren't allowed to tactic yeah it's union bust it's yeah to demonize unions Yeah. yeah well that and like the whole comparing your pay a lot of people will say like you can't talk about your pay between employees no you're no, allowed to do it that is your personal information because you can i know disclose. for a fact that people who in theory have the same level at the museum i currently oh yeah with or i'm currently working at mm-hmm. they are paid drastically different i oh, know yeah. for a fact that's happening oh yeah and they only figured it out because the museum posted a job listing accidentally with the pay on it mm-hmm. and all the people at that level were like what the fuck yeah <laughs> like- no and, and that's a tactic that's so often used. Uh-huh. I remember when I was working hourly wages, I had a I had a boss for a while that was pretty misogynistic, like like openly. The way he treated women and men was so different. And we were a team of almost all women that were working truck, and we would go in two a.m. be lugging t- like hundreds of pounds of boxes, and we had one guy on our team, and he treated that one guy so differently. Mm-hmm. And eventually, and I was very close with that one guy, and eventually I made a comment like, "This is not worth." you know, it was a little more than minimum wage. And he was like, what do you mean? And we had all, we were young. We were in high school. We thought that when they said we couldn't talk about our pay, that it we weren't serious. allowed to. Yeah. And we all realized that all of the women, even though we were doing more work than the man and we were there every day and the guy wasn't just because his schedule didn't allow it, we were getting paid so much less. Yeah. And I lit into the manager and I was like, I will literally, like, if you, like, we are doing more work, we are putting in more time, we are doing the harder labor. Why are we, it, it is not a different position. Why is he getting paid more than us? Because he's a guy. Mm-hmm. And 
it was the first time I ever realized that like you have to utilize whatever tools you have, whether that is your salary, your wage, your hourly, whatever you can to leverage power against corporations. Mm-hmm. Like you are allowed to do it. Yeah. And that helps break down the class issues that helps break down the like the discrimination between people. Like it's yeah. important to know. So the, the Egyptian officials were really relying on that at this point that like they wouldn't group together, that they mm-hmm. wouldn't be able to essentially unionize. So take a hint from the Egyptians people. Know your worth and be willing to work together and and also wear a really cool eyeliner. Mhm. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. For sure. Yeah. Makeup was on point. Mm. Honestly. Yeah. Sorry. That was my rant because I've always, I've remembered that, yeah. um, that feeling of knowing how much harder I worked than that guy. And we were good friends and we still are. Well, not really. We, I don't talk to him anymore, but like we were good friends. And I just remember yeah. like the anger in my blood, like knowing how this guy treated us and that I was getting paid less on mm-hmm. top of that. On top of the crappy treatment. I've never felt like, I think that might have been where the feminism began, really. Like, because, you know, always we're like, yay, women. But, like, that was the day I was like, oh, no. Yeah. And I'm sorry that it took it happening to me for mm-hmm. me to finally, like, be more vocal about it. But it was a good kick to the teeth in high school that I yeah. needed. So yeah. um, that was fun. And the leaders here in Egypt haven't quite grabbed. Because this is a new concept. Again, them banding together and being willing to yeah. put on all our tools at once is a new concept. So they don't quite know how to deal with it. And they're like, okay, we can't just keep giving them food. Pastries. They literally just throw pastries out <laughs> to the workers who are in the streets refusing to work. Um, and they're like, go home. And all the workers are like, okay, we have pastries. And they went home. And then the next day they were like, that wasn't enough. We gave them to our families and the pastries are gone. We would like... Also, pastries only last like three days. Yeah. Um, so what are you supposed to do with that? Yeah. I, I think the officials assumed like, ah, a pastry to tide us over for a week. It's like Lucille Bluth and that... It's one banana, <laughs> it's Michael. One banana. How much can it cost? How much can it cost? $12. <laughs> <laughs> the officials were a little out of touch. Um, So the strikers show up again the next day. And this time... They in kind of like infiltrate and infiltrate and break into the granary and storage building where all the officials are, and they're like, "Hey, we're storming the castle. Work with us. Pay us." And these men, these officials inside, are kind of like, "Ah, no, we don't. We can't do that for you. Leave. You are not allowed to be here." They even <laughs> called the police, Classic. or like what would have been the police yeah. at the time. And the police chief essentially shows up and he's like, hey, y'all go home. And they're like, the strikers are like, no, we won't. Not until we have like payment or wages or something. And the policeman's like, okay, I can't really do anything. I can't really throw y'all out. So like, bye. And he just leaves. (laughs) Only American police are like that. (laughs) Mm. Strikers. That would be nice. Um, the police, yeah, I kind of think the police was on the side of the people, the strikers, because he was like, that is not how really... it is anymore. No, it is not. Um, so the police was just like, um, y'all officials made this issue and he didn't pay them. So y'all deal with it. I'm leaving. Bye. And he peaced out. Hmm. Um, and at this point, the officials in the granary are like, obviously a little worried and are realizing they aren't just going to be able to walk away from this one. So they negotiate a payment to the workers to go home. They sent everyone home with some payment. And from what I can tell, a lot of these officials were hesitant to communicate to the pharaoh or their bosses what was going on. Because 
They didn't want to report up the chain of command at all because their failure and their position would have seen as a lack of that societal balance. And they could get, like, not just, like, canned from their job, but, like, actually, um, like, what's the word? I don't, I don't know. Fired? Legally? Yeah, not fired, but, like... Charged? Charged, yeah. Okay. Like, like, charged with... I don't, I don't know what you're trying to say. Pe- um, not, like, penalized. I cannot think of the word, but it's, in- like... Indicted? No. Um, I guess the word I'm... I just t- held accountable, I guess, in a... In more than just being fired. Like, you could be publicly charged and held... I, I don't know. Not held like, accountable. I'm, I don't I'll think know of the word mean. later. Yeah. It'll come to me at, like, 3 a.m. Um, so, yeah. They were hesitant to tell any of their bosses or anyone else what was going on because they did not want to be... To lose their public regard and standing and jobs. But this sets a good precedent. Um, and they realize very quickly... Those strikers realize very quickly that... Hey, they're not going to pay us again. They paid us just to get us out of the building... And next month has rolled around, and guess what? Guess who didn't get their paychecks? Mm. And if going to infiltrate their offices didn't... Well, it did work before, but what are they supposed to do? Do the same thing every single time? Have a holdup every single time they don't get paid? And they're like, okay, we're doing this again, but we have to go big or we have to go home because we have to stop this cycle of doing this. We're spending our time, instead of working, Mm -hmm. striking, and we need to stop being fooled into thinking they were going to fix it. So they actually organize a blockade of the roads into the Valley of Kings. Oh. Yeah. And for those of you who are not obsessed with Egyptology in your younger years, <laughs> um, Valley of the Kings is a space. First of all, get a life. <laughs> yeah, I know. I would like, I think you need to find first a time all, machine and go try again. Grow up because. <laughs> if you did not have like five books on a niche history topic. Listen, not even niche. It, it's like literally one of four things. <laughs> it's like Greek, like it's the Greek, Greek gods. mythology. <laughs> It's space, it's Egyptians, and it's... What's the fourth one? For me, it was Titanic. Satanic? T- Titanic, Cal. Oh. You know this about me. <laughs> Did you say Satanic? I know that a lot of people like the Romans, like the ancient No, Romans. no, no. Roman is... That's a different category of people who that's like true. the Romans. That's true. We're talking... We're talking... I know, what, I know what the kind of people you're talking about. Um, for me, it was space. But it could also be, like I said, Greek mythology or Egyptology. Those are huge. And I want to say, if you're really into like a specific history event, that will also be. Oh yeah, that that's your fourth category. Is your pick your own. It's your choose your own. Choose your own adventure. But I, the judgment does depend on what, what what history what niche you yeah. If you fit into the same grouping as the other three. Yes. So. Yeah. Yeah. Titanic does group you in with the other. Oh, it totally does. does. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um. Wow, that's my childhood to a T. Um, but yeah, so those free those of you who are not obsessed with Egyptology and don't know the Valley of the Kings, um, it's essentially where a bunch of really high-rank um, nobility, pharaohs, all these really important people were buried. And part of the practices around burial rituals that, at this time is not like a one-and-done, you're in the ground. It is a continued... Um, religious practice the priests and surviving members of a family would bring things to those burial places take offerings to those who had already passed on to the next life it is a pinnacle of society culture and religion and so if your workers block off a road 
for the high-ranking people to perform mm-hmm. their sacred rituals, that's going to get a lot of attention. Yeah. It's kind of like how a lot of rich people don't pay attention to issues until it directly affects them. Yep. But you know what it does? It causes a ruckus. Yep. And this definitely did that. So um, this was seen also as an insult to a lot of the people who had passed on. So they aren't just threatening the existing nobility family, noble families anymore. They're actively insulting some of the previous rulers by blockading the Valley of the Kings. So they were taking a gamble on their own front of, you know, this could go very poorly for us in a myriad of ways. It was bad enough, though, that some of the leaders come forward and threaten them with bodily harm and removal if they didn't mm. open up the barricade into the Valley of Kings. That's sounding more, that's sounding more modern. It sounds like strike breakers. That yeah. sounds a little bit more mm-hmm. familiar. And the strikers are like, hey, you see how many there are of you and how many there are of us? We're already here on the roads. You can't get past us into the Valley of Kings, but we can. And if you try to remove us with brute force, we're going to turn around and start destroying these temples and pyramids. Mm-hmm. And... Everyone's like, oh, oh, back up, back up, back up, back oh, up. Wait a minute, we got, we got us. Yeah. Um, that was, like, the turning point. That was huge in, like, every way. Because threatening... I That's mean, leverage right there. Yeah. It's like, think if we were to have a bunch of protesters block off, like, the White House, the National Mall, the Washington Monument, and then be like, hey, if you try to hey. hurt any of us, we're literally going to blow them up. That would... That's the equivalent. Hey... Um, this is a very different situation, but we don't actually have to imagine that. Oh, that's... Oh. <laughs> too, soon. So you know. too soon. Too <laughs> soon. Yeah. Um, you're right. It's a very and I, different thing happening, um, but... We don't have to we, actually we imagine that. Yeah, yeah, we do actually and that's have not a even, visual uh, for that. And for us, that's not even a religious monument. That's just our political monuments. Yeah. Like, this... That's... That is... Um, what is the term? That is... Secular... Yeah. I don't know it, if that's what you mean. No, like, the term, it's like, that's our Snapple money. Um, <laughs> no, like, what? it's like small, small, small beans. Is that the term? Small beans. It's small beans compared to what we would, con- our, our loss of our national monuments, it's like small beans compared to what that would mean for small them potatoes. to lose. Thank you. Yeah. I couldn't think of the food. That's it. I'm struggling today with thinking of my foods. Um, <laughs> I think you're having a hard time with words more than foods. I am. Yes. So... At this point, um, the officials realize that they're screwed and they're not going to be able to win this. And there's no negotiating out of this one. They cannot bodily remove these people. They're actually going to have to, you know, pay them. (gasps) Revolutionary thought. And I would also like to point out that this cycle, the months where they would pay and then they'd wait another month and then they'd have to, you know, break into the granary and basically hold them up. This is three years of strike. Like three yeah. years since this process has started. I'd be started. pretty pissed off too. I, that would piss me off enough to do the first strike. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I would have, I would have done something a lot more drastic a lot earlier if I was talking about three years of this. I, yeah, I would not have lasted long. I think in Egyptian society, I would have been a little too um crazy. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's really funny, Kag, smelling you. Ooh, crazy. <laughs> I know. <For> the Egyptians. <laughs> I know. Um, so, yeah. And they realize they want to fix this before the Jubilee itself. And they have records that the vizier, who, in theory, should have been overseeing all this payment originally, was never informed about the strikes either. He was actually in Thebes when all this was going on. And... We don't know exactly the people that... I don't think we know, unless it's in the 
actual transcripts from the papyrus scrolls. Mm -hmm. We don't know exactly who it was that informed them what was going on. Um, That might have also partially been an attempt to hide the mistake and not acknowledge any person as being at fault because they don't want to admit that a person being on fault for not, you know, dispersing the payment and everything. But eventually they realize there's no, there's no way to do this other than to just paying the tradesmen. So they do. And the Jubilee did what it was supposed to for the people. Um, for a hot second there, everyone was having a really good time and getting drunk and hanging out and everyone partied really hard, but that only lasts so long. And again, the strikers are like, Hey, uh, we're not, we're still not getting paid fairly or on time. This whole process is obviously not going to be a one and done. We'll just pay out and the strike will end. And that's where a lot of historians start thinking that this contributed to the fall of the new kingdom. Mm. Um, because it started the precedent for the leaders and officials to ignore that balance that they were charged with keeping and the money became less, more of an issue. So, um, the entire relationship effectively has been ruined and yeah, they did eventually pay out, but yeah, they did eventually like, you know, get them all back to working, but it has ruined the trust between the officials and the tradesmen and for a long time, Ramses had been seen as the third, had been seen as a decent ruler, but it made it very obvious that the, there was a huge loss of power and control by the mm. end of his reign. And he actually didn't live long past his 30th Jubilee. I think it was like a year and a few months after that he died. And I believe there is a strong suspicion that he was poisoned in a scheme by a scheme of one of his wives and sons to switch off the power exchange. But he is known to be one of the last effective rulers of the new kingdom before huh. everything collapsed. Um, so yeah, we don't, I would have loved to see like an actual transcription of the scrolls. That would have been really cool to read myself um, and know exactly what was omitted for the sake of the officials and everything. Um, the scrolls were eventually found at Deir el Medina. Again, they were written by Amenacht, um, the scribe. So we can thank him for what we, what we do know of the first official strike. Um, and they may not have ever been able to define what they did as a strike or a unionization or anything like that, but it set a precedent. And over the final years of the New Kingdom, you know, as I said, Ramses was the last effective ruler, but he was not the only one at the end. But over those next few, you see multiple strikes like this again. Hmm. So obviously it caught on quickly and obviously people kept up the practice enough that it wasn't lost between the generations. Um, and as we head into the collapse of the Bronze Age... um. I should just do a whole episode on the Bronze Age because I can't go into how everything fell. But with lack of resources, striking cultural and agricultural and infrastructure and religious practices were just collapsing around them. And eventually this was both a contribution and a side effect of that Hmm. collapse of order. So it's really weird because it's not weird. I think a lot of strikes start that way as a result of a struggling culture absolutely but they sometimes also contribute to the ultimate downfall hopefully that is not what's going on in america right now um or the rest of the world but it is interesting that we see 
um, the possibility for reform in these strikes that yeah. was never fully taken at its potential because it would collapse nonetheless not long afterwards. So we never yeah. know really just how effective this strike was. I mean, the first round of the, the big first round, the first big round, there we go, yeah. of labor movement in the U.S. didn't collapse it. So I feel like we'll, we'll, we can make it another another round. Yeah, well, I think the if thing it was just labor movements right now, I, I would say, be... The thing that's bringing down America is not the labor movement. It's <laughs> other movements that are it's happening a, simultaneously. A lot of other things. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, well, that was really interesting. Yeah. I had never, I had no heard idea that. I mean, that's I think really interesting. the concept of striking, like the word and the definition of the term striking, I knew it had to be more modern than that, but it's interesting to see that even if they didn't have a word yeah. for it, they did it. They, they well, yeah, that's, went on the strike. So many things in history like that. And it's just, it's, you got to wait until someone comes around and names it. Any, and then you're like, Oh, I did that. Any, was any flower by other name wouldn't, any rose by another name wouldn't would, smell, so would sweet. smell, would smell sweet. sweet. Yes. So, yeah, that is that is the first strike that we have on recorded history. Wow. That was really, that was very interesting. Good thank job, you. Kat. Thank you, thank you. I'm ready for yours. Oh, okay. Um, do we want to do a Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, you're right. <laughs> I was just so excited because I've heard about yours. We talked about it in our ethics class. Ethics? Mm-hmm. Museum ethics because of um, some of the monuments oh. and stuff that were. Oh, well, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like. Which ethics class? <laughs> no, 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 the museum ethics class. Um, but yes, recommendations. Yes. I, because this event, uh, no, not this event. Um, this episode is coming out on the 12th. I'm going to recommend that everyone go to NASA's Instagram, Twitter, something, because we'll have the first images released from the James Webb telescope on Tuesday, July Oh, 12th. really? Yes. So if you were at all interested in that, um, if you have been keeping up with it or if you haven't, the James Webb Telescope is a new telescope. They launched it um, either on Christmas Day or right around Christmas um, 2021, so just this past Christmas. But um, it's been six months to get it set up, put in place, and start taking pictures. And it is like tens of times more powerful than the Hubble Telescope. And the images we're expecting to see are going to be like nothing we've seen before. Um <sighs> Can so, wait. if you are at all inclined to look at that, I would. That's my recommendation for the day because, oh my God, I'm so excited and I've been keeping up with it since they launched it. Um, so I'm really excited to see. There's supposed to be five pictures coming out. Um, so I'm very excited to see. That's what I'm, and mm. it's going to include, you know, the iconic dub, uh, Hubble telescope picture of like the just the field and space where like every spot of light you see is a galaxy. Oh yeah. There's going to be one of those, <gasps> except it's going to be so much more insane because it's going to be for the, this much more powerful telescope. Ooh. Um, so yeah. Okay. So that's my recommendation. I am extremely excited for that. Yes. That oh sounds, my God. I'm so excited. That yes. sounds really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I picked up a history book this week. <gasps> I have not, I'm, I'm no, I'm, I'm still reading my YAs that or my yes. new adults that you and, Emma recommended it, don't worry, but I felt like I needed to read some history stuff, yeah, and I... I s- What'd you get? It's a book that I've had since undergrad, and because I loved one of his other books, it's Timothy Snyder, it's Black Earth, and it's hmm. it's about, it's it's like during the time of the Holocaust, and like it's interesting. really interesting so far. Yeah. Um, I would highly recommend it. It is definitely written by an academic, mm. so mm-hmm. if, you know, if you're in the mood to 
power through a couple sections that are like, wait, I've got to read this once or twice to get the full impact of it. I would highly recommend it. Um, but that one's, yeah, that one's not so much like a feel good, chill out and watch this. That's a, definitely an academic recommendation, but it's really good. Oh, interesting. I, I've been looking into Audible to get a subscription, but I turns out I don't nice. like how their subscriptions work. But I really want to get into history books. There's a few on my list that I've wanted to read for a long time. You um, should... You should message Ella. I can give you uh, our our friend from um, yeah. a couple of years ago. She had some really really good uh, history Audible recommendations. I think it was Audible, or at least they were audio books. Yeah, audio books. Um, she, I think it was just audio books. Yeah, but she yeah. gave me a couple recommendations. I think there were some on the presidents that she really liked. Yeah. She said they were well done. So it's, um, it's hard because the ones the history books I want to read are newer, and so mm-hmm. I have. Most libraries will actually give you some access to some sort of online. Right. Um, it's either ebook or audiobook. Most libraries will offer both. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, of course, have a bunch of audiobooks, like history audiobooks, but the ones that I want to read haven't really hit the libraries yet. Ah. Uh, so um, you're in that waiting space. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but we'll see. I'm having a good time with um, the series that I'm reading now. So, and I already have a few book- books left. Or, that I'm going to pick up after it. So nice. Anyway, I guess that means it's my turn. Yes, ma'am. Hit us with it. (laughs) All right. So I alluded to it earlier because, um, I mentioned Chicago and if you know anything about labor history in the United States, (laughs) um, then you know about Chicago and you've probably at least heard about what I'm doing today. So today I'm going to be covering the Haymarket affair, which is also known as the riot or there was another word and I forget, but, um, one of the podcasts I was listening to, to like just you know hear about this um was like i don't really feel like any of these terms kind of describe what happened what i feel like best described happened is the word incident because it's just you'll see but it's a very interesting thing that happened um and it was kind of the culmination of a lot of things coming together um i included this quote at the beginning because I think it's pretty apt, but there's um, a labor historian by the name of William J. Adelman, and he says, quote, no single event has influenced the history of labor in Illinois, the United States, and even the world more than the Chicago Haymarket Affair. It began with a rally on May 4th, 1886, but the consequences are still being felt today. Although, ra- although the rally is included in American his- history textbooks, very few present the a- event accurately or point out its significance. Which is very true. That's that's a daring state a daring statement to say that is one of the most important in the world. I'm curious to learn oh, more now. No, it's it's like actual like No, I, I'm not doubting it. It yeah. just makes me realize that I don't know enough about it for something that's so important then I, I definitely don't know about Well, about this. I know I've learned about it before, but it was never treated more than like It's always been a footnote in a right, textbook. Yeah. And like, oh, this is what happened. I feel like my US history teacher mentioned it in high school but didn't go into much detail, which is very true. Um But it does kind of have, like, these impacts that we can still feel today. So this is a pretty big topic. And as I mentioned before, it was kind of the culmination of a lot of things happening. And in a lot of ways, it was kind of um, something like this was always going to happen because the labor movement was kind of trending towards an event like this. Um, So whether or not it was going to happen on this day, on May 4th, 1886 in Chicago or somewhere else, it was going to happen. So, yeah. But... To understand, we, of course, have to, you know, know all of the factors that we're working with. And um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about those. So first, we're going to talk about working conditions. 
And I know Kat and I have talked about it, or at least mentioned it several times throughout Wait, the give course me, of this. Sorry, give me a year one more time. 1886. Oh, okay. Is when the Haymarket Affair okay. happens. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I had to, like, contextually set it in my head. Yeah. Well, if you... <laughs> labor in 1880s. Yeah. You said working conditions, and I was like, oh, we're pre... Oh. We're pre... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah we are firmly in the 1880s. Um, so... One thing that happened in the late 1800s and about the 1870s is we have this crazy new thing happen to American work, the the American workforce, and that is called, what's it called, cat industrialization? It sure is. So, I was like, I hope I get this right. If I get it wrong, it's shameful. <laughs> um, so we have the Industrial Revolution, which just brought about this like huge catastrophic change to the way labor and like the way labor is done, the way workforce is organized, organized, the way companies are treated, the way employees are treated, because no longer are we going to like a skilled craftsman to like knit you a pair of socks or whatever. You can just pick them up at the local whatever store for a couple cents. Um, and so this radicalizes a lot about American society. <sighs> um, Poor children. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, what that means is that we, lose a lot of our autonomy that is kind of given to people when they have like a skilled labor mm-hmm. kind of they have a labor skill so no longer do you have like a family of cobblers you know you have everyone's going to work in the factory who can afford mm-hmm. it because um we don't need cobblers anymore because we can just go buy shoes mm-hmm. so it changes the way the workforce works in america um and this obviously comes with a considerable amount of growing planes because under a capitalist society, whenever something can be exploited, it will be exploited. Yes. Um, and we definitely see that here. So if you know anything about industrialization, we, you know that work, work conditions were just like abysmal. <laughs> I mean, like and your Kat, pay is absolute. Sh- oh, it's awful. Yeah. I know, Kat, you did the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory and that's yes. like the ultimate ultimately a result of a society who treats its workforce like this yes um people were expected to work 10 to 12 hour shifts every day and they're um, so expendable that it doesn't matter if they die in a matter fire if they die in a fire if they quit what are you gonna do we're just gonna go get another one this is also a time when a lot of immigrants are moving to the united states so we have an abundance of workers who are willing to work for mm-hmm. you know less than what they deserve just because they had to make a living not because oh they're coming to steal our jobs like they have to have some money. Yeah, you, you know? have to People put food have on the table. Live. Um, this is when we see slums pop, not slums in the way we think of them now, but like right. tenant housing, yeah. like never before as our yeah. influx, especially I mean, with immigrants. I mean, it's, there's... Being taken advantage of in every industry, yeah. every um, work industry, housing there's industry. There's so much more that deserves to be said about this than what I can mention today. Um, Did you do tenant housing? No, before no okay maybe i need to do a whole episode about that i think so i think the labor this kind of part of american history is gonna be done less so in an episode purely about it but just in the different factors that affect it's probably the most abusive yeah well no i can't say that um because there's some horribly abusive parts of american history including slavery slavery, but this is but this is up there this is up there with Mm -hmm. like the conditions that we were letting people and yeah. taking exploiting people in. Yeah. So Chicago as um, one of the most widely or fastly growing cities in America at the time is kind of the, 
it is also a major industrial center for um, America at the time. So it kind of became kind of the center of this movement. And if you've read um, The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, you know, like, that's based in Chicago. Like, Chicago was the center for this. Did you not know that? For some reason, I thought it was New York. But no, I'm I think you're sure right. I'm pretty sure it's Chicago. I think you're yeah. right. Um, I'm going to confirm it. Not because I doubt you. Yeah. I just, I'm just, no, no, it threw no, me off for a me. second. I'm pretty sure it's Chicago. Um, I don't, I can't remember where Muckraker started. I mean, those are just journalists. Yeah, in general, but it's just, it, yeah. I feel like there was a higher concentration in New York, and maybe that's why my brain was thinking. Well, there's just more people in yeah. New York. Um, Chicago was, like, expanding enormously at the time. We have a huge influx of immigrants to the city seeking out this factory work, um, specifically German immigrants, and we see German immigrants play a huge part of the story. Factory workers at the time um, were employed for about a dollar to a dollar fifty a day, so they would spend a twelve-hour shift and earn a dollar and fifty, a dollar and fifty cents. Um, of course, that's you know inflation and everything. Um, if you want to know something even more depressing, so a dollar fifty in eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties. Um, I did. It's hard because most inflation calculators only start at 1913, so you kind of have to, like, guesstimate. But I would say it's around 40 or $50 for a 12-hour workday. Um, if you want to be really upset about the way America is today, the federal minimum wage um, at seven twenty-five an hour working a 12-hour workday is only $87 before taxes. So we are only making about $30 more than these people were during, like, the worst of the labor abuses um yep so god i can't and yep. i thought that was normal i remember working for minimum wage and thinking that was it's okay because we're, ta- we're taught to we're taught to think it's normal we're taught to think that our government and will actually protect us and yeah. mm-hmm. give us a standard and, and if you don't know minimum wage is supposed to be a thing that's adjusted yeah um, it's supposed to literally allow you to live a minimum inflation. lifestyle yeah um but it hasn't been adjusted in i think since the 90s so no, no, no. The last time uh, federal minimum wage was increased was, I want to say, 2008. But I could be wrong. So, Yeah, the jungle is Chicago's meatpacking. Chicago, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's a whole other thing. It's just, it's not only how employees were treated, it's how the actual products were treated themselves. Oh, because, yeah. Because, I mean, the meatpacking industry disgusting was... Conditions. Disgusting conditions. <laughs> um, disgusting. So, like, we didn't even have the Food and Drug Administration. That was created in part because of the jungle and mm-hmm. how it brought awareness to it. So not a good time. We had one, no protection for workers whatsoever, both in and out of the factory, you know, safety regulations were non-existent. Um, so it was just a bad, bad time. Um, yeah. So like I said, 10 to 12 hour work days, um, unsafe, deadly accidents happened all the time. Um, they it was efficiency over everything including people's actual lives so it was you know working class families often had several family members to working in a factory to actually just get by Mm -hmm. as a family and that of course did include children and child labor um because this was a big thing um some machines could only be operated by children because Mm -hmm. they had smaller appendages and could do things like that and so you had kids as young as six seven or eight working in a factory every day See a lot of that in cotton and textile industries too because Mm -hmm. the looms and stuff to get in there you have to have small hands and delicate hands yeah um that's why you have a lot of terrible accidents like if you like the pictures you have of kids whose hand got caught in the Mm -hmm. machine like it's terrible Mm 
Um, so one, uh, as we were talking about earlier, but one of the big pushes that labor unions kind of became rallied by and rallied behind was the adjustment of the workday to from 12 plus hours to about eight. And so we have that famous slogan of the eight hours for work, eight hours for rest and eight hours for whatever we will. Um, as we know, they, they eventually got that. And that is still the system we function under today. However, <laughs> I Should actually like, I actually like did the math and like, yes, technically like eight hours for like, you know, it's 24 hours divided three by three. Seven, so it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's eight hours. That's how math works. But like but when no. you are, <laughs> so you're working eight to five, you have an hour for lunch. Mm-hmm. So Already you're working longer than eight hours, even mm-hmm. though you technically have that hour off. So like, you usually can't go BS. home. Yeah. You'd lose half your time. Exactly. Um, you spend at least an hour, I'd say, uh, getting ready for work, either at the beginning of your day or showering or do whatever. Like anything you're doing for work because you're going to work, mm-hmm. in my opinion, should be work. You're I agree. Commuting. If it's expected of you to be in the workplace, yeah. it should be counted you're as commuting work. And with traffic, those commutes can be an hour plus both ways mm-hmm. like it's you're really only getting i'd say maximum five hours yeah to yourself mm-hmm. maximum oh yeah throughout the day so it's just it's a very flawed system but of course when you're starting from you have 12 hour work days six days a week eight hours is eight like hours a miracle. is like a luxury <laughs> um so yeah so that's kind of where that whole situation is right now um so the People belonging to the labor unions themselves, especially those in leadership positions, um, really got a lot of their ideas um, and materials and would consider themselves to be. I, I don't know about like the individual labor union members, but definitely those in leadership, I would say, would kind of consider themselves to be either a socialist, a communist or an anarchist. And because those words are so politically charged brought yes um i just wanted to find them just so we're all kind of on the same page especially with anarchists because that is that's a that's very, a big scary word that's to a, a lot of people yeah. um yeah so socialism i just pulled these i literally googled socialism definition i just pulled them right off of there just because you know for <laughs> just Yep. For everyone's sake. Um, so socialism is, is defined as a political and economic theory of social organization, with advo- which advocates that the means of the production, distribution, and exchange should be owned or regulated by the community as a whole. So it's the workers own the means of production. So it's, you know, you have your co-op places where they're all working and putting work in together. So there's no, like factory head or owner or mm-hmm. CEO it's you know the workers the ones who are producing the value of for the company actually receive the benefits of that value mm-hmm. communism is defined as a political theory that is derived from Karl Marx advocating class war and leading to a society which all property is publicly owned and each person works and is paid according to their abilities and needs I want to fight with this definition because I don't like the inclusion of class war because I don't think that's ultimately I mean maybe as Karl Marx defined it well, and it's like, what does class war mean? Does it mean right. tearing down the walls between classes? Or does it mean, like, physically fighting in yeah. order to achieve it? I think it's just the ending of all kind of a class structure. Gotcha. And, but class war is such... It's also very charged. Um, I've got... It's been a so, while since I've read Karl Marx. I should probably pull out my book again and reread it. Well, the it. Communist Manifesto is... 
it's not actually that long. It's not that long, but it also wasn't supposed to be like the end all be all work. Right. On it's not communism. a definitive work yeah, on the It's topic. just more of like a pamphlet. Yeah. Um, but I would say I, I just, I take issue with, I don't know, because to me, communism means more of like the state controls and then add like, well, it's changed a great deal over the years. Oh, wait, so absolutely. yeah, yeah. That's the, the modern definition, definition of communism, at least what, you know, our labor, what, what was taken in, in the labor movement, um, is probably very different than the one we have now because they yeah. also didn't see like, you know, the Russians and the Cubans and people who are like claimed to be communists, mm-hmm. but they have this weird, like bastardized Warped. version yeah. of communism. It's very complicated. Yeah. Well, they're, I, the Victorian ideal of socialism is different too. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then there's anarchism and Communism doesn't really come up as much in this, but it's still relevant to talk about in in a labor movement because yes, it's it's a theory of labor and redistribution and everything. Um, and then there's anarchism. So anarchism sounds like a big crazy word that you know, obviously anarchy, just total no rules, whatever, chaos. But that's not actually like what the political belief or um, would that be the word belief? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. The- um, political ideology. Ideology. Uh, that's where yeah. I was looking for. <laughs> um, so it's defined as the belief in the abolition of all government and the organization of a society on a voluntary cooperative basis without the recourse or force or compulsion. The recourse to force or compulsion. So basically, it's a classless, like, no hierarchy society. Like, everyone is we on the start... same thing, playing field. Yeah. There's no such thing as upper, middle, lower classes. There's no such thing as, like, kings and queens like everyone is the same which is interesting because the anarchy an anarchist the definition has less to do with financial distribution and yeah. cooperation as it just as it does Hierarchy. just the it's just it's just class issues right. which is inherently linked to financial but like yeah. yeah no it's a lot less focused on it's not so much like hey we want to take everyone's money and taxes and do that it's more like hey don't sucker punch the little guy below you yeah yeah like we are all human we are all the same um and anarchism does get thrown around a lot when you look up the Haymarket riots um, or the Haymarket affair, whatever you want to call it. And this is where I want to talk a little bit about sources um, because just in like the very accessible sources that I was mm-hmm. looking at mm-hmm. as in, um, you know, history.org or Britannica mm-hmm. or PBS oh, or, yes. You know, just those really accessible first page of Google sources you see. There are widely different, mm-hmm. like, attitudes towards this event, language that's used towards this event and addressing it. And it's, like, incredible to see how different um, some of these sources are. Uh, one of the sources that I actually ended up using a lot was the... So, there is the Illinois Labor History society that I didn't know existed, but they're like a dot org. They're fully funded by like Illinois, I think the state of Illinois. Hmm. Um, and they have an article on this. And if you go and you read this article and then you read the history.com one, not dot, not dot org, like I said earlier, but history.com, like they're using completely and radically different languages oh, yeah. to address this. Um, so I'm not saying one or the other is wrong, but it does speak to the attitude that people have addressing this and just, like, kind of how fraught it still is to this day. When like, did this they event. change the um, monument? 
over there, wasn't it? In the last few years, the or the acknowledgments around so, it. So, I don't know exactly when that happened. Um, cause it was I, recent, though. Yeah. I'll talk about it towards okay. the end of the notes, but, um, never mind then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I know the answer to your question specifically, but, um, maybe I will. I don't know. So anyway, so all of that, it's kind of background stuff. So, um, of course in the labor movement, there's a lot of different things you could kind of rally around being working conditions, working hours, um, you know, child labor, all of this stuff is kind of, you have all these different causes you could kind of take up arms for the Haymarket protest that it kind of became or started as a protest and and then turned into the affair, um, was specifically concerned about this eight hour workday movement. Um, that's kind of the cause that it was rallying around. And as I mentioned earlier, as early as 1867, there was legislation that on the books, like in Illinois, that prevented Illinois workers and actual federal actually federal workers, both from like prevented them from working longer than like an eight hour workday mm-hmm. as early as 1867. Like that's early. Yeah. That's, <laughs> um, that's two years after the civil war. Like that's early. That is early. <laughs> um, and even though this law was on the books, there was a lot of loopholes that most, if not all employers used to work around it. Um, and, basically every employer, every factory employer would force their employees to sign a contract that made them consent to working days longer than eight hours. So even though technically, yes, they were consenting when every factory is going to do the same thing. It's not a choice. choice. It's you have to, because you need a job. Um, so they were still being exploited without, despite this lobby on the books and law enforcement didn't care because, well, they signed a consent form. Um, and that's, it's, it's still not, the law is not effective. So basically the leaders of this particular movement really just wanted this law to be enforced and respected and enacted as it should be because they were like, no, we, we need this. So <clears throat> the summer of 1884, the Federation of Organized Trade Labor, Trades and Labor Unions, which would eventually become, it was kind of the prede- prede- well, predecessor to the American Federation of Labor, said, okay, in two years, on May 1st, 1886, we are going to mark that date as the beginning of a nationwide movement for the eight-hour workday, which gave them kind of two years to plan, get the word out, get people excited for it, like, into it. Um, and then on May 1st, 1886, would be this, like, big final push to be like, no, we're going to, it's going to mm-hmm. start now and we're going to do it. Um, and that was a legal push or would that would be, like, a social movement? This is, like, a like a social movement like it would be it was like like a protest like a strike um they didn't really call it a strike but like this is well you can't if you call it a strike you're gonna get a lot more yeah Yeah. um this is also happening in the context of between 1882 and 1886 there was a significant um economic downturn that made conditions worse for a lot of people because their wages were you know not what they should have been to like actually survive and live Um, so the labor movement was seeing a big boon kind of in these years. Um, the Knights of Labor, which is kind of an iconic labor union, um, they weren't, they didn't call themselves like socialists and they weren't radical, but they did support the eight hour workday. So they're kind of like that union for people who didn't want to be, you know, 
not those crazy guys. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, I would still like an eight-hour workday. Um, just as an example, they grew from 70,000, a membership of 70,000 in 1884 to over 700,000 by 1886. Gosh. So like insane increase in their numbers. Yeah. Um, in Chicago specifically, we did see the anarchist labor movement. Um, so different groups that would call themselves anarchists grow by several thousand people. Um, and it was mostly immigrants that were joining these kind of movements, which is really interesting. Um, and it was a lot of German immigrants and it's kind of, it's kind of like a cause. And also they were to blame, Uh, they weren't to blame, but like, the law enforcement blamed them because like they were bringing a lot of these more radical ideas over from Germany. And so they were getting people in America kind of, you know, inspired (laughs) because Americans don't have like the same framework that Germans do. Um, And then of course at the end, they were the ones being blamed for it, even though like they weren't necessarily doing anything. They were just talking about like politics, you know, it wasn't, it's not their fault, but of course, because we are extremely xenophobic (laughs) Mm-hmm. You know, yes, it, it, yes, yeah, they were blamed for it. So, um, a lot, what another thing that's really interesting is we see a lot of these smaller organizations, specifically the ones that would call themselves like socialists or anarchists, so outside of like the democratic um, political system. They started, they started so many newspapers, like so many newspapers, so many. I can't even tell you. I was like listening to this podcast about it and they were like, and then he started a newspaper and then he started a newspaper and then he started a newspaper and I was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) And at some point you're like, you're flooding the market. There's so many newspapers. I know. I know. Um, It's really cool though, because that does mean we get a lot of like primary source. That's true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, But like it it was to the point where I'm like, I'm not including all these newspapers. This is ridiculous. That's understandable. Um, What you do need to know is that a big man in kind of these alternative newspaper spaces in Chicago was a man by the name of August Spies, and he was a German immigrant. So um, he edited the newspaper Arbeiter Zeitung, which I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. You did. Okay, cool. Um, which is called the the Workers' Newspaper, mm-hmm. and then he also had another one. I don't know what the German was, but I believe it was the Attack. So like, he's very big in this labor publication world august spies and he comes up later i'm very proud that was a very very close very good pronunciation thank you um it would be more like an arbeiter yeah arbeiter yeah, there, there you go. go there you arbeiter. go arbeiter yes um anyway so he was a big 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 guy in chicago two other people were also big guys in chicago and the labor movement in chicago but also just in the united states in general were actually a couple by the name of lucy and albert parsons and these two are very very interesting people um and they were kind of like the it couple of like the left at the time the political left like everyone loved imagine it being was kind of like couple of the labor movement that would be such a cool title <laughs> like like it was like if bernie sanders wife was like super involved politically too like this would be like that level like gotcha. the love and respect there like would be the same thing gotcha um so what's really what makes them so interesting is not necessarily their their status as a couple but like they're both individual histories so we don't know too much about lucy's past and actually she would become famous after this incident in her own right in the labor kind of world and spectrum or arena um so i am gonna save most of her for maybe another episode in the future Ooh, um she's but, that cool huh yeah her wikipedia article is um long so you know that's good Ooh. <laughs> um, but we do know that she was born a slave it was 
she was either born in either Texas or Virginia and then would move to Texas when she was very young. Um, it's not like entirely sure. We think like anywhere from 1881, 1851 to 1853 is when she was born. And her heritage was either African-American, Native American, or Mexican, or some combination of the three. Um, and she actually famously was like, no, it doesn't matter. Like, I'm not going to clarify details on my past because like that, it's not relevant. Um, so get it girl. Yeah. So all we know is that she was enslaved at some point and then was obviously freed after the civil war. Um, and then would eventually meet and marry Albert Proxens and then move to Chicago with him. Uh, we do also know that she worked for the Freemans Bureau after the civil war in Texas for a time. So that was pretty cool. Now we have Albert, which I am going to get a little bit more of a lengthy, not a lengthy, but like a little bit more fleshed out of a bio because, um, well, you'll see why I don't really feel like I need to do a whole episode on him. <laughs> okay. So he was born on June 20th, 1884, and, 1884, 1848, geez, in Montgomery, Alabama. Um, he was one of 10 kids and his family can trace their roots like back to the Revolutionary War. Like he, they're like an American family, a Southern American family. Interesting. Yes. Um, his parents would both die uh, when he was a small child, which means him and the younger siblings were left to be raised by his eldest eldest brother who lived in Tyler, Texas. So they moved from Alabama to Tyler, Texas. At the age of 11... <clears throat> he wasn't a slave, though. No, no, no. This is a white man. Oh. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. So. Oh, okay. So she yes. was a slave, but he was... She was a okay. slave, but he was... Gotcha. Yes. At the age of 11, he left his brother's house to go live with his sister in Waco, Texas, which I feel like we mentioned Waco a lot on this podcast, and I don't really know why, mm. but I know there's not a lot going on there, but I don't know. whatever. Um, so yeah, so he lives with his sister, and at the age of 13, he does something not super great, and he tries to enlist for the Confederate States of America. Come on, bro. I know. You were doing so well. Was he? No. I mean, he's from Montgomery, Not really. Alabama, so, you know. Well, I mean, there's nothing that had proven his... <laughs> yeah, know. yeah, exactly. Um, and so since he's 13, uh, I don't know. I saw some weird thing on, on his, like, Wikipedia article. was like, he went in this, like, kind of auxiliary thing and did this one thing in Galveston. I'm not entirely sure. But I do know that, like, later when he was older, he enlists again. Um, and then his enlistment expires, which I didn't think that was a thing that happened um but then after that he enlists again so three times mm. he enlists in the confederate states of american army bro take that um so so not it's not great um don't like that but what's really weird is so he he goes back to waco after the war and he buys some land and he goes to school and then he starts his own newspaper <laughs> um it doesn't exist anymore because during this time, he had this, like, huge change of heart and has all of a sudden, like, done a 180 in his beliefs and starts to advocate for, like, the rights for African Americans at the time. And he starts to advocate for labor rights and, does, and like, becomes, a, like, a Republican politically. <laughs> um, so, huh. yeah. So he has this huge change of heart. And I didn't see why i'm not even sure if we know why but all we know is that like maybe he was never in favor of slavery maybe he was that i mean for him to enlist three times 
I, I hate saying it because I hate the idea. I hate encouraging this narrative. But there were a few men who enlisted because they felt like it was their duty as Southerners. I don't know if that was the case because at least after he would like go on to like condemn the Civil War and be like, no, it was a rebellion of slave owners. Oh, okay. So then he had a change of heart. Okay. Yeah. He wasn't one of the... No. Yeah. I hate like, I hate talking duty. about that. That yeah. whole like, I'm a Southerner, so I have to fight for the South because that creates the narrative that that was like, okay, and it wasn't. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he genuinely so did a 180. Something happened in his life and he decided no. Um, one thing that I saw was interesting is that, so he bought, he like traded something for land to for land to farm corn on and according to what i saw is that he hired ex-slaves to work the land which i'm like okay interesting that could be interesting because it could be like you know tomato farmers which is yeah not great but i'm wondering if it's something there like when he actually interacted with the people who were affected by slavery yeah oh realized like oh this is yeah yeah um so something happened and you know, he had a change of heart, which we, we do love and appreciate. We so stand. Good, good for him. So in 1869, he got a job. Um, oh, and I forgot to mention, like, oh, no, no, sorry. This is later. So in 1869, he gets a job as a traveling correspondent and business agent for the Houston Daily Telegraph. Um, during his time working for that newspaper, he met he meets his future wife, um, who um, he would go on to marry in 1872. And... Uh, so she would become Lucy Parsons, and so she has her own episode. In the she future, deserves it. She sounds awesome. Yeah, so um, I'm not going to go into too much detail because, you know, spoilers. Um, but the pair married in 1872, and then in, like, the meantime, they moved to Austin, and he works for the IRS for, like, a hot minute, which I thought was weird. Dude. <laughs> um, and then they both um, decide to move to Chicago in 1873, and so that's kind of where they are now. So they go up to Chicago, join in, and the labor stuff that's happening up there, both become big, big names in those movements. Um, Albert would go on to be one of the leaders of the International Working People's Association, so the IWPA. Um, And this was a more militant group and is often thought to be... You'll see why, but his connection to this organization would ultimately lead to some things that happen later, so, like, not great. But the really interesting thing about the IWPA and the more militant groups that are happening at the time is they had just discovered... Oh, no. Dynamite. I was about to say, it's... (laughs) This is around when, like, weapons are starting to get a little crazy, so... Yes, so... One of the, like, most favored tactics of oh, the IWPA God. and the other groups who are kind of right there with them, with the more aggressive side of things, is that they were like, dynamite is amazing. All of our members yep. should make bombs and have a bomb on them at all times because you never know when you're going to need it. And they were, like, super proud of this fact. And they were like, they would openly be like, no, I have a bomb on me. And Good like, Lord. Um, uh, they would publish because again, they were, they had their own newspapers and they would publish. This is how to make a bomb instructions. <laughs> um, okay. That's not great. And like send it out to their members. And so their members were like, had bombs on them. And, <laughs> and they were like, so proud of it that August spies, that guy I told you about earlier. He was, like, known infamously to, like, have a bomb just sitting on his desk 
he just like displayed. What did you knock over like I know. your candle? And they like completely advertise it as like a completely safe thing. Like it'll protect you from the police and like blah, blah, blah. Which also speaks to like how shitty the police were. Yeah. Um, because they like actually have to carry a bomb like, on you. I would rather times. carry a stick of dynamite than trust the police. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. Okay. I know I haven't talked about the actual Haymarket affair like yet, but you really have to know all of these things to know like, what's you. going on here. So, <clears throat> two years of publicizing and planning and getting everyone um, involved and invested in this, you know, May 1st strike or movement, I should say, in 1886, it finally happens. So, one thing that this movement has going for it is that the mayor of Chicago, Carter Harrison, is actually really sympathetic to... I don't know if he was sympathetic to the labor movement, but he was like, no, these people have rights and they have the freedom of assembly and they're allowed to voice, you know, freedom of speech, all that stuff. Yeah. And they're, I'm going to allow them to do this and I'm going to permit this. So there wasn't a lot of flack coming, at least from the mayor. The police, on the other hand, are a whole different thing. So on May 1st, when they, you know, planned, there were actually as many as 80,000 workers that participated in the strike. It was said that 40,000 of those 80,000 were actually like actively laid down their tools and walked out of their factories to Dang. come and join this um fight so like and that's 80, just in chicago people. yep Jeez. so they marched up michigan avenue um if you are from chicago i'm sure you know what that means i don't um, and what's really interesting is the police were like oh this is gonna be awful and so they actually planted hundreds of private security and militia groups like they hired like like private sector snipers what the- like just lay people yeah use to, your like, money to do that mm-hmm, to like put them up on rooftops all oh up and God. down the route that they were gonna march um just in case something happened because they were so anticipating something to happen and despite all of this the day went off like without a hitch like nothing bad happened on may 1st so okay that's good really okay it's amazing that someone didn't instigate something just to make right. a point but the police are like I think the police are looking for a fight. Oh. And you'll see why. Very off. I mean, if you very if you basically, like, deputize individual, yep. like, s- like snipers on a rooftop, I feel like you can't that's be mad when yeah. workers and strikers don't trust the police because, yep. like, yep. how are they supposed to? You're literally waiting for something to happen so you can shoot them. Uh-huh. So, um, in the background, while this is happening, a strike was happening at the McCormick Reaper Works, as in McCormick as in the salt. And if you actually go to Chicago today, there is a, the McCormick building and it's not home to like their headquarters anymore, but we did like a little architectural boat ride and um, the building was actually constructed to look like a salt, salt shaker. Like there's little holes in like a mm-hmm. decorative piece on the roof. And I'm like, oh, that's fun. Um, anyway, so McCormick, the McCormick Reaper works. There was like an ongoing strike here on May 3rd. So two days after this like big movement, strikers... Um, and again, depending on the source, you're going to see different words for this and even different accounts of what they were actually doing. Strikers were upset at the scabs that were leaving for the McCormick, from the McCormick building. And if you don't know what a scab is, it's basically people who cross the picket line to go. Because um, the whole point of a strike is that the factory can't function anymore because it doesn't have employees. Yeah. Um, so people who cross the picket line and go work anyway are a big... It's a big no-no. It's, it's a big it's, no-no. It's It's... It'll earn you a lot of hate from the strikers, especially yeah, because, because like it, you're destroying the point of their exactly. Protest. It just totally like it undermines negates, their efforts. Yeah, anything that they're trying to do because the factory workers are like, well, whatever. Okay, we'll bye. Just hire scabs. We'll just hire new ones. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, and again, not necessarily like blaming the scabs because people need to have food on the table, mm-hmm. but like 
it's shitty that you even have to be put in that situation. Anyway. Yeah. So. That's the hard thing about the history of strikes. It's like, yes. you can't be mad at the people who are so desperate that they literally can't go a day without working. Yeah. But you can, at the end of the day, you got to place the blame on the corporations that yeah. make those, that put those conditions exactly. in place. Yeah. It's not the worker's fault and it's not the scab's fault. It's definitely the people who are doing the exploiting. So, um, again, contradicting events of what happened here. It said that the strikers were um, upset at the scabs. And one account that I heard that was probably the most realistic of what happened um, is that (laughs) they were kind of throwing rocks at the scabs. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, it's not great. Don't throw Mm -hmm. rocks at people, but like, it's not going to kill anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, However, and this is again, it was either done in reaction to supposed violence being committed against the scabs or one of the rocks led astray and hit one of the 200 policemen that were on site to help quote protect the the policemen were sitting there waiting for this oh it totally was because they were led by captain bonfield and he was known as blackjack and he had a vendetta against unions like he was determined he was like these people are like he did not like strikers and any moment he could take to like basically flex the might of the police force against them he was gonna Mm -hmm. take um yeah so (laughs) One way or another, uh, the police get involved and attacked the crowd of strikers um, using both nightsticks and guns. And this ultimately results in the death of two of the striking workers. Um, Some pieces report that as many as six people were killed, but we do know at least two. So anywhere between two and six. Either way, not great. Mm -hmm. Don't love that. So because of this, um, the following day, people are like, this is ridiculous we have to like do something about it. Mm-hmm. And so they organized um, like a protest rally and for the next evening. So the night of Tuesday, May 4th. And this was really just like kind of done to like spread the word about what happened. Um, just get people like ignited and be like, you can't like just inspire more participation in this because like, see how they're treating us, you mm-hmm. know? And it wasn't supposed to be anything, anything. It was just supposed to be a rally. It wasn't supposed to be, like people brought their kids to it yeah you know and lucy and albert parsons who were like invited there to be a speaker like literally brought their two young children to it like it wasn't supposed to be anything yeah um in fact even the mayor who i mentioned earlier who was really sympathetic to the cause was like no i'm gonna go it's more like come hear some speeches about why it's important than a vicious like a rally or riot it's not a riot which is like it's that's why that word doesn't really fit either because yeah. it's not a riot. It's, it's not even not. a protest. It's a assembly. It's an assembly. To, like yeah. hear people exactly. talk about the issue. Yeah. So the mayor is like, no, I'm going to go and I'm going to be seen because he wants, he is quoted as saying, quote, I want the people to know their mayor is here. So like he's in full support of their people, of their, at least of their right to be here mm-hmm. um, and having this assembly. And he's like, no, I'm going to go, even though he's kind of advised not to go. Um, so he's like around the whole, he's around the whole time. Um, but there's a few, you know, hitches in planning. The meeting was supposed to start at 730. It got delayed for about an hour. Um, they expected as many as 20,000 people. However, there was around 2,500 people that actually showed up. Still a really good number. That's a pretty, yeah. But like a fraction of what they expected. To be, but for a, it sounds like they didn't have a long call. Like it wasn't, no, it was they didn't have a lot, the lot of time to prepare. Yep. It was like a. Yeah. So, I mean, like, you know. 
issues in planning are kind of forgiven when it's like literally less than 24 hours probably yeah. than the last they had to decision. plan it. Yeah. So as I mentioned, the Parsons were there with their two young children and Albert was slated as one of the speakers. There were three speakers that night. Um, so the first speaker was August Buys, who the newspaper guy I mentioned earlier. Then there was Albert. And then the last speaker, Samuel Fielden. Um, and he had kind of been delayed because apparently Albert had like talked like way longer <laughs> than he was supposed to. Sounds about to. right. Yeah. It always um, goes that way. Yep. Yeah. So he's like, he's kind of got like the crap into the stick because one, he was delayed and two, there's like this storm rolling in. So most people had left um, before he had even started. So by the time at around 1030, he, and he was like wrapping up a speech, there was about 200 people there to hear him talk. Mm-hmm. So the mayor, uh, the mayor had left the rally before Fielden even beginning to began his speech. So he left after um, Albert Parson finished his, and he actually stopped by because the police are like obviously ready because again this, you know, captain is like mm-hmm. itching for something, and so they're they're waiting kind of in the nearby areas and the streets. And mm-hmm. so he stopped by. I think it was like a cafe or something where Bonfield, the police chief. Um, was hanging out and he like the mayor goes to the chief of police and was like hey this is nothing like leave it alone go home this is this is not a threat like no big deal y'all can wrap it up and go home Mm -hmm. despite that after the mayor left bonfield sent in his troops and decided that okay they're done so a total of 176 policemen all carrying Winchester repeating rifles Dear God. at about 10 30 PM, just as like Fielden was about to be done and like wrap up his speech and like no violence had happened all day long. Um, they show up and they demand and the speaker is like, it's not even a stage. He's literally speaking from a wagon. Like it's not, he's standing on a wagon talking with to 200 people, people with max. 200 people and a police force of almost like they're almost met evenly for 200 Jesus people. Christ. Um, so Blackjack or Bonfield proclaims, I command you in the name of the law to, de- to desist and you to disperse. So he's like, I'm ruling this as an unru- un- unlawful gathering, which is total BS. That's the <laughs> most direct violation of freedom yeah. of speech. Um, and so Fielden's like, Hey man, like I'm almost done. Just let me finish my speech. And then like, we'll go like, we're fine. This is not. And so they argue about it back and forth, back and forth until someone throws a homemade bomb into the crowd of police and it explodes (laughs) as bombs do so yes obviously that immediately escalates the situation yep it instantly kills policeman um matthias day uh, not day matthias j degan um and he is killed like from the blast immediately um, fun fact, this is actually the first dynamite bomb to ever be used in peacetime in the history of the United States. Hmm. Yep. Interesting. Um, witnesses state that immediately after the bomb blast, there was an exchange of gunshots between the police and the demonstrators. All of the policemen were armed. Some of the demonstrators were armed. It's unclear how many demonstrators, because obviously they're not going to be like, yeah, I was armed. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, um, and so this is where accounts get like incredibly, incredibly muddy. And depending on the source you look at, they're going to tell you two different things. Mm-hmm. They're going to tell you that all of the police deaths were a result of the workers. Mm-hmm. Or they're going to tell you the police in the confusion because it was late at night and it was raining, fired, fired on each on other. other. Yep. 
I think it's somewhere in the middle. There's got to be some amount of friendly fire. Yeah. Considering the number of guns that the police had versus the number of guns that civilians had, mm-hmm. I'm going to say at least some of those deaths were friendly fire. Well, and like how much they really trained with revolving, like mm-hmm. like how much, how well did they know those weapons? Yeah. So at the end of the, as things kind of die down, uh, it comes clear that seven police officers were dead and around 60 were injured. I don't see where a crowd of 200 people that maybe had, I don't know, 20 no. guns in it as, as no, no. It had to be some number of friendly fire. It's not clear. Um, Some forensic work that's been done after the fact has shown, you can see the bullet marks left on lampposts still in the area, apparently. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those bullet marks seem to be coming from where the police were Mm -hmm. um, instead of being fired back at the police. So it's it's hard to know. And we'll never know. Um, But I'm going to say at least, you know. Yeah. I would say... A it's sig- fair to say that not all of that was no. done by... Yeah. Um, and four workers were also killed in this skirmish. Um, so, yeah. So, that, it in and of itself, is the Haymarket Affair. Like, that interaction between the police mm-hmm. and the workers is the Haymarket Affair. Of course, the effects of it are so much broader and wider. So, um, because, you know, policemen did die as ultimately as a result of the bomb like that is confirmed yeah um someone had to pay for it basically yeah um not you know in that way but like the police needed someone to blame yeah um and to hold accountable so to this day we do not know the actual bomb thrower's identity like we have no idea if you go on the wikipedia article for like the haymarket affair they literally have a section called potential bomb throwers (laughs) dang (laughs) Um, and like they have all of these suspects but like we don't know um, so it didn't matter to the police. As I said before, a lot of, um, oh, sorry. So as we know, the entire labor movement and immigrant community, because of the influence that like Germans specifically had on the labor movement were called under like, called into question. So they like, are like, okay, we have all of these suspects because obviously this was a huge pre-planned plot to assassinate the police force. Um, and we're going to get them and we're going to find them. We're going to bring them to justice. So police carried out raids on homes and offices of any suspected anarchists. They did so without warrants. They just like completely disregarded the law and the actual like amendment right to have a warrant to search your property. Well, now that doesn't exist in Mm -hmm. a lot of places in the U S either anymore either. No, no. So, um, again, another, another reason why anyway, so dozens of suspects that were like, could only had like a vague connection to the actual Haymarket affair were arrested. Um, legal requirements like again they did just disregarded search warrant search warrants um they subjected labor activists to an eight week shakedown so basically like this went on for eight weeks just like the whole because it was obviously like yeah the labor movement but i think more than anything it's the german community in chicago that probably got the brunt of it because we know with any big immigrant city you have like you know, you have little Germany and you have, yeah. you know, all of this stuff. And I'm sure that that whole place was just terrorized by the oh, police sure. force for weeks. Um, because it's a much easier target than trying to, like, get a broad network of labor, you know. Oh, yeah. Union people. So, um, ultimately, they decided that they were going to place the blame on eight men. 
of those eight men, only two were actually present when the actual event happened. Are you serious? One of them was the actual speaker who was oh in, my God. like, everyone's view standing on a wagon. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and there's no way he could have thrown uh, that bomb. Yeah, you would think not. Mm-hmm. So they rounded up these eight men. Um, I'm going to name them. Uh, I had to pull up this weird thing to, to, to name them. Because none of the articles had, like, a list of valid names. So I'm going to do this. It's like an illustration. This is only seven of the names, actually. Um, because one of them... You'll, you'll hear it in a minute. So this is Albert Parsons, Samuel Filden, uh, Louis Ling. Um, I think that says... Oh, yeah. Aug- yeah, that's August Spies, Michael Schwab, George Engel, and Adolf Fischel. I think that's what that says. I literally have to, like, use an illustration because no yeah. one actually named all the, the names of the people, which I think was disrespectful. So I'm going to do it. No, I'm glad you did. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Yeah. So... They run them all up and they indict them on charges of conspiracy to commit the bombing. So not the actual bombing, but like conspiracy to commit because the police had decided this was some part of this whole plot to uh, assassinate police people and to kill them, which is not true because people <laughs> like actually brought their children to this yeah, event. And know. if they knew there was going to be a bombing, they would not have brought their children. No, um, no. So um, they rounded up all these eight men as I said, only two were actually present when the event actually happened. Um, Albert Parsons, who's been kind of like our main character in this, he actually tries to flee to Ohio, but he feels guilty. And he returns to Chicago, to Chicago um, on the first day of the trial because he was like, no, I need to go stand trial with like my compatriots, which like good for him. That's pretty honorable. Yeah. Um, so it's complete bullshit. They, yeah, I'll get to it. So, um, the police are saying, so the prosecution is like, oh, they have this whole conspiracy to do all of this stuff, and which is just not true. And it's just an excuse to arrest eight of the leaders of the labor movement in Chicago at the time. So the trial, which is known as Illinois v. August Spies et al., begins on June 21st, 1886. And it quickly becomes one of the most notorious trials in American history. Um Allegedly, the Chicago Tribune even offered to pay money to the jury if it found the eight men guilty. That's ballsy. Um, Speaking of the jury, um, it's pretty much a universally accepted fact that the jury was extremely biased and would never have ruled in favor of the men. I'm still stuck on the newspaper openly trying to bribe a jury. Yeah. Um, It said that... uh, one of the podcasts I was listening to said that they interviewed over 800 jurors and selected the, was it 12 people on a jury? Um, only of the 12, only two were actual workers. The rest had some sort of leadership position and would not be in favor of a labor movement. Of course. Of course. Um, it's also known that ju- the judge that oversaw this trial, his name was Joseph E. Garrett, actually was aware of the biases that the jurors had and allowed them to um, sit on the jury anyway, which again jury is supposed to be a trial of your peers and you're supposed of to be unbiased um, so it was doomed from the start so the defense lawyer uh, his name was William Perkins Black was able to provide al- alibis for all eight men again only two were actually at the rally at the time and they were both in full view of the crowd and police so like there's no way they could have actually had anything to do with the bombing yeah um, Albert Parsons had actually left with his wife and August Spies was also gone he was not there they had left before this incident even happened so like there's no nothing that mm-hmm. would put them there 
Um, they, the mayor even testified that the rally was peaceful and attended, wasn't fully attended by women and children. So like, it was not a dangerous event. It was not this pre-planned thing. However, the prosecution, um, I don't think they had to convince the jury very much because they were never going to rule in favor because they knew by putting away these eight people that a big hit to the labor movement would happen because they were leaders, all of them. Right. Um, so cutting the head off the chicken. Mm-hmm. The prosecuting attorney, Julius S. Grinnell, declared, quote, the law is on trial. Anarchy is on trial. Gentlemen of the jury, convict these men. Make examples of them. Hang them and you will save our institutions, our society. Mm-hmm. So on August 20th, the jury reached a verdict in only three hours that the eight men, or sorry, seven of the eight men were sentenced to death by hanging. Literally had um, alibis. Yep. And one man by the name of August, sorry, yeah, August Neeb, who was the eighth man that I didn't mention earlier, um, was only sentenced to 15 years in prison. Um, I believe he, he wasn't as connected, like they didn't have yeah, as much maybe quote his, unquote evidence. Maybe his alibi was a little more sound. Yeah, oh yeah whatever God. the hell that means. So obviously the wives of the defendants basically immediately initiated the appeal process. Um, there was a germer, uh, wow, germer. journalist and reformer by the name of Henry Demarest Lloyd. And he leads a national campaign to try to grant these men clemency. Like this was obviously like everyone knew it was a shitty trial and like these men should not be. Yeah. Um, there were even bankers that favored clemency, believing that, you know, you know, moderation is the way to get this, to work this out and not like give them the labor movement martyrs because like, that's what happens. Even judge Gary, the, the stupid judge who was like, no, I'm going to allow this swung jury. I, um, yeah. He writes to the governor on behalf of two men, um, Samuel Fielden and Michael Schwab, and who would ask him directly for mercy. So Governor Richard Oglesby said that, okay, um, I'll commute their sentence to life in prison. However, I can't do anything else for the other five men. Oh my gosh. Because, um, they have to ask me directly. Dude, stop being such a little, mm-hmm. I, I, try, I try not to cuss on this podcast but sometimes it's really hard it's a little it's 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 frustrating it's extremely frustrating so um one of the prisoners lewis ling actually interestingly enough does die in prison and it's really argued whether that was a suicide or something else if it wasn't a suicide Mm. um all they know is that they found him in his cell and a bomb had gone off and he was oh i don't like the so, optics of that yeah um one thing, i highly doubt he was able to smuggle his own bomb in there yeah. that feels like something else yeah to me. so it said that he there was like a a bomb disguised as a cigar that was snuggled into his cell that he used however it's really interesting because apparently ling was hoping to receive a pardon that very day or receive word on a pardon so that's um that's suspicious timing to me so on November 11th, 1887, Adolf Fisher, George Engel, and Albert, Pars- Albert Parsons and August Spies were hung, or not hung, sorry, <laughs> hanged. <laughs> I do that too. Yeah. Um, so they were executed by the state of Illinois. Um, what's also interesting, I didn't mention earlier, but I believe out of the eight men that were um, charged, only two of them were not German immigrants. So mm, that's a lot. Yeah. Like incredible xenophobic. Like, yep. Yeah. Um, apparently spies said this like on um, the 
what's it called the platform we get hung oh yeah the the hangman's platform yeah Yeah. he said quote the day will come when our silence will be more powerful than the voices you were throttling today (sighs) i mean he was like a newspaper guy so he knows how to say there was a one podcast i was listening to it was called um cool people in history doing cool stuff or something like that Hmm. they had a whole two episode thing on this and the the guy was obviously like super into labor history um but he had some quotes from him and they were like really cool um so if you're interested in that i'm sure you can find a lot of quotes from him and his newspaper so unfortunately that is the end of those four men's life um yeah so in 1889 the statue you're talking about cat um was a statue put in place near where the uh haymarket affair occurred um that commemorated the policeman who died mm-hmm. during the event. Of I found course, that on the podcast. Yes, yeah, that's, that's cool. Yeah, um, of course, it seemed like a good podcast. I was enjoying it. Um, we have uh, <laughs> really done a lot of thinking about this event, and we have decided that that's not super great. I'm not sure what the status of the statue is now, because that class was like a year ago. Yeah, but. <laughs> Um, the good news is, is that in June of 1893, the new governor of Illinois, John P. Altgeld, pardoned the three men who were still alive. Um, so that meant the four men who were hanged, um, if they were, if their if their descendants was committed to life in prison, they would have been pardoned just uh, six years later. So that's incredibly frustrating. Um, and the governor in this act actually went so far as to condemn the entire judicial system that had allowed this injustice. Um, he said, quote, even anarchists were entitled to a fair trial and no greater damage could possibly threaten our institutions, um, than to have the courts of justice run wild or to give way to popular clamor. So directly referring to what the prosecuting attorney said about how Mm. these men will, we have to do this to save our institutions. Yeah. And in June of 19, or sorry, 1893, there was a Haymarket monument that was unveiled in Chicago's Waldheim Cemetery, and that is still there, and you can go see it today um, if you're interested. So this, like, because the trial was so long and because it was such a shocking event, like, the Haymarket affair was something that made international news. Like, it was a yeah. huge, huge well, I see now at the beginning when you said that that guy's quote about how it's like resounds across the world. Yeah, I totally see it because it's mo- it's much about police brutality and bias as it is. It absolutely is. Well, two because you have the two different things that are going to come out of this. You're going to have yeah. this these men being made martyr martyrs for the labor movement and used yeah. to kind of you know yeah. further the movement. But then you also have the capitalists and the police and all of these people being like look what happens if you dare yeah do you know all the policemen that died during the the skirmish do you know if they were all policemen or some of them were like the hired snipers that they had the day before okay i think this was just policemen okay yeah not because they hired all those people because they knew that the initial initial strike in march was going to be so huge so the police is just okay yeah so. so this is 100% the police looking for a mm-hmm. fight. Mm-hmm. And with this captain, from what I saw in the sources, he was looking for a fight. 
Um, so in July of 1889, a delegate from the American Federation of Labor recommended at a labor conference in Paris that May 1st be set aside as International Labor Day in memory of the Haymarket affair and the men who had died because of it um, and the injustice committed there. And so to this day, in almost every major industrial nation, May Day or May 1st is considered their Labor Day. Um, so for a long time, there was about half of the American labor movement who observed May Day, May 1st as Labor Day, and the other half was um, did it in September, which we do now for mm-hmm. Labor Day. Um, however, it kind of got switched in America from the May 1st, which is so funny because May 1st is, is here. Is It happened here, yeah. which is why, but... You'll see why. But um, so the Russian Revolution on May 1st <laughs> became associated with communism. So yep. again, so in the 60s, we're like, well, we can't have a May 1st holiday. Oh, my gosh. Um, and so they changed it to the September date. And that became the more favored one in America. I think we should start taking both. I think we should, too. We really deserve it. Yeah, absolutely. We can't work too hard out here. I know. I know. <sighs> Damn. <laughs> Um, yeah, so as I said, this, it was ultimately, like, the death of these men was used as a tool by pro-labor and anti-labor activists alike, um, just because that's what happens when you have this kind of thing. Because, I mean, literally, the prosecuting attorney literally said, we're going to use them as an example. And that's what they were, like, around the world. Um, I saw some conflicting things saying that, like, oh, the labor movement took a pretty big hit after this, Mm -hmm. um, or they didn't. Um, I think that... You can see both aspects of that. Yeah, it probably depends on where you are. Yeah, where you I stand could, on the issue, yeah. Yeah, I could see the labor movement in Chicago taking a big hit, but in surrounding cities where they didn't lose eight significant leaders. Yeah. Well, and I can also you know. see that, like, depending on how your newspaper in your town, town yep. reported it, changing how you yep. view this bias. Yeah. So, ultimately, the labor movement does carry on, um, and they're able to secure a lot of the rights that we have today, but that battle is far from being over, and it is something that we still see happening today, obviously, and uh, uh, it's very relevant to right now. Yeah. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, that is the Haymarket Affair, and I'm so sorry I talked for so long, and I didn't realize how long we'd be talking because there was a lot of things. It's um, okay. I'm yeah. glad you covered it. Um <sighs> It's our theme, or it's their themed episode. They usually run They usually run a little longer. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's a really relevant issue, so I'm glad you covered it. I'm glad you didn't shy away from it because it was going to be long, so that was good. Yeah. I listened to so many podcasts because I was, like, reading some of the articles, and I was like, I don't even know how to put all of these different factors, like, into a cohesive thing that will make you, like, understand, like, what's going on here. (sighs) No, I'm glad. Um, So, yeah, I hope I did a good job. Um. That is the Haymarket Affair. And now I'm super pissed that I didn't do this research before I went to Chicago because, like... It would have been a lot more It would have been so cool to go and see, You know what this means. We gotta go. Exactly. We gotta go. I haven't been since my dad took me for work once when... When you were young. Yeah. And you weren't gonna be like, oh, the Haymarket Affair. Uh, Yeah, I was definitely... I was more like, a museum! And now I'm like, can I go to the Chicago Museum? Yeah. Yeah, so... So... Wow. Okay. Thank you. Well, that was wonderful. Thank you. Um, <sighs> and keep all of this in mind as you watch the world around you guys. This is all relevant. And if there's any other topics that you think are relevant to us and the time we are in and you would like to hear more about them, you can always tweet at us at T-I-N-A-H-L podcast on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, one more thing I wanted to mention oh, is yes. that like, also keep it in mind when you like think about like, 
I don't know, like anything to do with your job. Like these people fought so hard for these rights. And it just is a reminder that like every right we have under a capitalist society was not granted to us. Yeah. Someone had to fight for those. And Mm -hmm. just, it's a really good thing to like, keep in mind that like men died. Like people died. A lot of people. Yeah. In this instance, I think what? Yeah. At, At the most we had at least, 14 people died just related to this like yeah. in this story that we're fighting for labor so like this is a really like just mm-hmm. and a lot of the time grateful. i mean we have a lot of work left to do yeah but... and a lot of the time the people that did die and push so hard for this are not people in your situation they're often minorities yeah. they're often people who were suffering insurmountable odds um as white women we got the vote way earlier than women of color um and so much of the civil rights movement was run by women of color that we still benefit from today so like it's important to acknowledge too that like yeah people really fought for this and oftentimes they're the people that you know were discriminated against heavily or immigrants or so yeah yeah thanks for pointing that out yeah so i meant to mention that earlier but yeah i just wanted to get it in there before we close but yeah yeah so um Cat give us a Twitter, so I'll give you the email. Our email is thisisnothistorylecture at gmail.com. And remember to rate us wherever you can if you like what we are talking about today. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, give us a five star. Every review you leave um, is another Topo Chico that I <laughs> might go buy at the grocery store and actually enjoy a drink for once. Hey, they cost the same as White Cloth, so. I don't know how much White Cloth costs. 15 bucks. Oh. I think this was. 16 technically mm. but well, it was good so yeah yeah well thank you to everyone for hanging around we know that the prospects are bleak right now um and honestly with what happened between this episode and last one who knows what's gonna happen between yeah i really next... thought america was just hanging on for dear life you know, but it's everyone so that it was just two things just out of nowhere yeah so um, yeah hang in there until we talk to you again but until then this is a reminder that this has not been a history lecture Bye. Bye.